Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Plata. I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. And welcome to our inaugural uh, silly game where we are <laughs> taking this 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 month, this March of 2020, to go into Malibu Madness, where we do kind of a... Uh, uh, high level overview of the show so far, what we like about it, the best moments through the structure of a 64 team uh, single elimination <laughs> tournament. Oof, <laughs> let's do this. So, we just uh, finished recording our, um, our conversation about what to put in the brackets which is a plus expenses episode for our Patreon listeners and turned out to go a little longer than I think we'd anticipated. <laughs> I, I feel like I already sound like I've been talking for a while and uh, <laughs> yeah, we rushed no. through a couple things because we feel like we already talked about them. You know, we'll do our best to hit all the high points, but if you want to hear well, our real deep agonizing over certain picks, <laughs> uh, you can go, uh, go over to our Patreon and check out that episode. I, I'll also point out that uh, everything that we're choosing is from our back catalog of episodes that we have reviewed. So if you really need to know what we think about it better than we actually know, you can go back and listen to the episode. Right. I think generally we're pretty good about remembering, like the things that we picked are generally things that we have a pretty good memory of, right? Because they're yeah. things that stayed with us. There are some things that in the details, uh, you know, we'll be putting in some audio to, you know, get yeah. the actual thing as opposed <laughs> to our bad paraphrasing of a moment and stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> hopefully it'll all sound okay. So that's what we're doing. So uh, if you want to visually check out our brackets, uh, that's a public post over at our Patreon. Um, so you can see our seating and how everything is, is uh, falling out. We have our eight categories split into our four regions, because why not go all the way with the metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> Our region one is the critics choice region where we will be looking at the best episode bracket versus the most Rockfordishness, uh, <laughs> which is a term that we've, uh, was, was coined for us by, by Emily. Um, the, in the same way that a Doctor Who episode has whoishness, uh, mm -hmm. a Rockford Files episode has, I, I think I started talking about the, the umami of Rockfordishness, yes. the, the chewy, <laughs> satisfying kind of aspect. Region two is Jim's world, where we will be looking at the best core character versus the best Jim fast talk to get him into or out of a uh, situation. Our region three is gas and gangsters, where we're going to look at the best car chase versus the best villain. So I think that will be a fun one for sure. And then our region four, marks and gaffs, the best con versus the best dialogue from the Rockford Files. Excellent. So if you couldn't tell, our intention here is not to establish some kind of absolute objective hierarchy. It's to give us a framework to kind of get into the weeds about what we love about the show in kind of a silly way, because obviously these things don't compare <laughs> in any, like, yeah, yeah. objective, <laughs> are, narratively important sense, necessarily. We are just trying to find another way to celebrate the Rockford Files. Um, all right. Where do you want to start? Uh, well, we could just start at the top, the best episode. That way we don't have to have that loom <laughs> loom over us throughout the whole thing. What episodes did we seed into our best episode category? Uh, so we have, uh, as in all categories, we have eight episodes here. We've pitted them against each other using um, the IMDb ratings. Right. This is the 
the one area where uh, we had the least amount of finesse in, in <laughs> deciding who was up against who. Uh, in the first two slots, we have Chicken Little is a Little Chicken versus Gear Jammers. We've decided that two-parters, uh, we're going to count both parts one and two together. Yeah. Uh, chicken Little is a Little Chicken versus Gear Jammers, parts one and two. Uh, the next two slots are So Help Me God versus A Quickie Nirvana. Uh, then we have the Queen of Peru versus the Trees, the Bees, and TT Flowers, parts one and two. And finally, White on White and Nearly Perfect versus the Paper Palace. Um, so, like, there's some nice uh, uh, synergy going on with these categories. Like, mm-hmm. the White on White and Nearly Perfect is obviously a Lance White episode, Paper Palace being uh, a Rita episode, and just pitting those two against each other is heartbreaking but also just <laughs> thematically correct uh and uh i think like so help me god versus a quickie nirvana uh is going to be our most contentious of hmm. these i suspect <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing is like these are all very good episodes hello listeners we really appreciate you being here and we want to make sure that you know that you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to episode previews and access to the 200 a day Rockford Files file spreadsheet, our patrons get plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we talk about movies we're watching, books we're reading, and games we're playing. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it. But if you want to help support us and get access to the new Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Each episode, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe-level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Jim Crocker. In addition to supporting the show, he also sells our games at conventions east of the Mississippi. See where to find him at Jim Likes Games on Twitter. Shane Liebling, if you play games online, you know you should check out his free dice rolling app, Roll for Your Party, at rollforyour.party. Jay Adon. Check out his amazing miniature painting over at jadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., Dale Church, and finally, big thanks to Detective Patrons. Check them out on Twitter. Eric Antenor at Antenor, Brian Pereira at Thermoware, Bill Anderson at BillAnd88, and of course, Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. We follow them too at 200pod. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend who you think would like it. And check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. Should we start making our, our arguments? Should we start at the top? Yeah, let's start at the top. All right. Chicken Little is a little chicken versus Gear Jammers. This one is my hardest because these were both on my list. Right away, we've put me in a boat that's sinking. And I can only save Angel or Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, I... Save Rocky, but like. <laughs> so here's the thing. There's two. There's two kind of ways that that'll help me think about these these real heartbreaker ones, which yeah. is some of them are kind of represented in other categories as well. Uh, yeah, because shockingly, the very good episodes tend to be full of very good elements. So yes. Um. So there's that. Uh. But also, here's a question. Uh. The the loser, is it going away forever? Do we never get to watch that episode again? Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, how high are the stakes for these choices? Yeah, that's uh, that is that is <laughs> well. We'll let the uh, the listener decide for themselves. <laughs> okay, but we encourage the listener to set stakes. <laughs> so we're looking at a great comedic episode versus yeah. a great uh, relationship yeah. and character episode. Chicken Little is centered on 
uh, Angel, of course. Uh, Gear Jammers is centered on Rocky, of course. I think my first impulse was like, oh, Chicken Little, obviously. That episode's great. But it is, as I said, uh, it is one that's represented pretty heavily in the other categories. Yeah. And I think Gear Jammers might be more unique as a real deep dive into Rocky's life. Oh, God. It just, it's so hard. I I was leaning towards Chicken Little uh, for the maybe the opposite reason why you were leaning towards Gear Jammers there, <laughs> or you were making a case for Gear Jammers, because I feel like Chicken Little is a little chicken is also an episode that I would be like, oh, you're new to the Rockford Files, mm-hmm. watch this one, right? Yeah. Like, which isn't to say that that's the the best criteria to choose best. I, best is so such a blank right uh, thing, uh, but uh, like if somebody came to me and said, where should I start with the Rockford Files? I would not feel like I steered them wrong mm-hmm. with uh, Chicken Little as a little chicken. That said, Gear Jammers uh, just has a just a big spot in my heart. Like I love yeah. I love watching Jim discover all these things about his dad that he doesn't quite know. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, it's so tough for me. It would be an even tougher choice if mm-hmm. it was just Gear Jammers episode one, which is weird. Mm. I don't want to diss Gear Jammers episode two, but I have a one is more like a two, thing. two. Two is where like the plot really kicks in, and one yeah. is full of mystery where you're like finding out all these things about Rocky that you never knew. Yeah, uh, which is kind of wonderful. How do you choose? Here's the other thing: I'm I'm not looking ahead, so I'm not like who yeah, is yeah. this going to face off against? That's not that's outside yeah. my purview here. Um, I think that might though change my selection if I were to do that. But oof, I think the idea of oh, you're new to the rockford files you should watch this episode puts yeah. chicken little little over the top for me all right let's do that yeah <laughs> are we we're, we're okay saying goodbye to gear, gear jammers and rocky and oh uh, yeah i just I mean, can't i just can't knock chicken little out in the first round that just seems yeah. wrong no, we knew we were doing this all right <laughs> we we knew we were gonna hate ourselves at the end of this so our first winner of Malibu Madness 2020 is the episode Chicken Little is a Little Chicken. All right. What's our next uh, pair? Uh, we have So Help Me God versus A Quickie Nirvana. Whew. I'm just going to every time I'm going to say I love both of these mm. episodes. So we love all let's of get these that episodes. out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. So Quickie Nirvana. So they're both kind of social issue episodes. Yeah. Um, Quickie Nirvana is much more personal. It's about the woman Sky who is trying to find herself in all these like hippie kind of semi like spiritual kind of endeavors that are all kind of excuses for her not to really address her own problems. So Help Me God is a more external issue where it's very specifically about the problems with the uh, grand jury system and keeping people in indefinite confinement if they're in contempt of court before a grand jury. Uh, Yeah, just context for maybe people who have not listened to us back when we did these episodes. What this comes down to for me is, uh, (laughs) well, one could say, so help me God change the world. (laughs) <laughs> and so it's got something going for it there. Uh, but that's not, I don't feel like that's criteria for what's going on here. It did have an actual effect in the conversation around grand jury yeah. trials in the 70s. But I think that one of the things that is really remarkable about So Help Me God is not that necessarily that it took that on, but it took that on and made a, an excellent episode out of it, right? Mm, like, mm-hmm. it's easy to do an ep- an episode about something and do it wrong or just kind of half half-ass mm-hmm. it. But this one took something that is actually 
really frustrating and hard to watch happen and made it a very entertaining bit of television. Yeah, it's not a it's not a, a saccharine after school special. It's a good right. episode with good acting and a good plot that also is addressing this issue. That said, like Quickie Nirvana is also like uh just a well done episode. And and like an amazing characterization of a character she's played for laughs, but not entirely and not ultimately like yeah. the ending to that episode is. Yeah. It's, it's sad. It's ultimately very tragic to me. It comes down to like how each one of them handled what they were given. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't solve our problem. <laughs> like, they both do it well. So again, if the, by the, Oh, you're new to the Rockford files, you should watch this criteria. I think, yeah. I think I would pick Quickie Nirvana. Uh, I yeah, definitely. If you, I mean, we specifically put off "So Help Me God" for a while. We wanted to do it right, and we had a great guest. We had uh, uh, Jess Banks, um, yeah, with us for that episode, which was great because she was able to give us uh, go into some of the real world like issues around advocating for people in the like justice, you know, being caught up in the justice system and stuff. Which is yeah. So that was a really so. As one of our episodes, I think that's one of my favorites that we've done. <laughs> yeah. But that's not the criteria. No. All right. I'll go with you on Quickie Nirvana. <sighs> I don't know. I was starting to talk myself out of it, though, because I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Again, are we knocking So Help Me God out in the first round? <laughs> See, that's, that is really – it's a titan. So two things. One, it is represented elsewhere in other brackets where Quickie Nirvana yeah. is not, actually. Uh, also, So Help Me God is a great episode of television. Mm-hmm. Quickie Nirvana is a great episode of the Rockford Files. Yeah. Like, it has yeah. more Rockfordishness to it, I think, in the way that, like, it's really about Jim's reaction to Sky. It's about him trying to take care of her, but also getting her to cut her bullshit. I do. I want to say So Help Me God, but I also want to say that Quickie Nirvana goes the distance. <laughs> like... <laughs> 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 like this is Rocky one and Apollo Creed wins, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it doesn't matter because uh, Rocky made it to the end and everyone remembers it that Rocky won. I, I say let's go quickie Nirvana. Okay, I agree. Yeah, I think it, 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 it is more of a Rockford. If this was a list of great episodes of 70s television, yeah. it would probably go the other way. But since it's about the Rockford Files, I think Quiggy Nirvana is more Rockfordy. My nonsense excuse is <laughs> if we don't do it now, we're going to have to have that same conversation for every single time. That's true. It comes up. All right. What's our next matchup? This is the Queen of Peru versus the Trees, the Bees, and TT Flowers. And my knee jerk reaction on this one is the Queen of Peru. Mm-hmm. I just remember moments from it better than, than mm-hmm. uh, the Trees, the Bees, and. TT flowers, though I'd like, uh, I think that now I can remember many moments from the trees, the bees and TT flowers. Oh God. The queen of Peru has a wonderful combination. Well, they both kind of do. They're both really well cast. Yeah. The family from Indiana, like they're super well cast. TT flowers is really well cast. Uh, that like character actor TT flowers is great because it's also about Rocky. Yeah. But Queen of Peru is just this, like, perfect little gem of <laughs> Rockford Files humor. Yeah. It's about money. There's, like, the weird gang from the UK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yes. That provides a oh, little bit yeah. of like pathos because there's the guy who got shot and he's like just lying in their back seat while they're trying <laughs> yes. to find the jewel. Yeah. The CB radio action. Let's not agonize over this more than we need to. I think Queen I think of Peru takes this one. Yeah. But Trees, Bees, and T.T. Flowers is probably my favorite two-parter, so I will leave that out there for people to think about. <laughs> yeah. um, and also the end sequence of the first episode where they're busting T.T. Flowers out of the Elder Home oh, yeah. is one of the great sequences. But Queen of Peru, I think, has the edge here. And so far, I'd just like to point out this pattern of ours where, uh, like, in each category, we've picked ones that we would also just say oh you haven't seen the rockford files yet yeah here you go i mean which i think is a good criteria for what's the best episode of the rockford files yeah <laughs> final pair up in this category is white on white and nearly perfect versus paper palace mm. uh this is lance white versus rita i'm not this isn't those characters <laughs> but it might as well be and I, because of that, I am leaning towards Rita, which is uh, not how the IMDb people went, but th- this one might win it on the dinner scene alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but also just there's, oh, I mean, this one, is this the one that they won awards for as well? Uh, uh, Rita uh, Moreno won an Emmy for yeah for this one. Yeah. And Juanita Bartlett is, we talked about this in our Plus Expenses we're really not trying to pit real life people against each other, right? right? We're not trying to pit this actor versus that actor, or this writer versus that writer. That said, uh, I mean, this is another, well, they're both made of great cast yeah. and crew and stuff. Yeah, I guess my counterpoints would be, I think Paper Palace is benefiting a little bit from recency bias. We've talked about it much Maybe. more recently than White on White. Um, and they're both kind of showing a different side of Jim. So like Lance yeah. White brings out Jim's like down to earthness and his exasperation with people yes. who have all these like wonderful things happen to them in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> While with in Paper Palace, Jim is like meeting Rita and getting to know her for the first yeah. time. And we kind of see his empathy and his warmth uh, with her. Mm-hmm. I will also say that we see some good Dennis and some good Peggy. Like there's mm. in Paper Palace is like all around. We get like into characters in some good ways. Yeah. That I'm, I'm not saying we don't in White on White because I can't remember if we do or don't. <laughs> white on White is really like it's really the the Lance White and Jim show. Yeah. Um, Lance White finds out everything he needs to know when he needs to know it. And that's the joke. Like, it's a very meta episode, right? Like, it's written yeah. to be commentary on itself, and Jim is kind yeah. of self-aware of that. But Lance is not self-aware, and that's, like, where the drama, like, that's where the, the friction comes in. So, I, I guess going back to the recommend, this is another mm-hmm. one where, like, 70s television episodes... I think we talked about this in that episode, right. how it's like, this is a great episode of television, yeah. uh, while Paper Palace is like a great Rockford Files episode, because it has all of those elements of the people around Rockford, the people he knows, um, him trying to like maintain peace between Peggy and Dennis and Rita. And I think we yeah. can't undersell the Rita-Dennis relationship. Yeah, uh, I'm leaning leaning Paper Palace. I don't know how you're leaning. I've talked myself into Paper Palace. <laughs> All right, I had I had made up my mind that if we had been in a deadlock, we would just go with the IMDb ratings. Uh-huh. So I'm glad you agree. Right. Well, so white on white and nearly perfect benefits from the Tom Selleck effect, right? Like people yeah. are like, "Oh, Tom Selleck's in this. Oh, he's great." Which 
I understand. Yeah. Uh, but Rita Moreno as Rita Kapovic is in more episodes and is more Rockfordy of, of a character. Yeah, no, uh, Lance White is, is interesting because, it, like you were saying, it when he's there, it's more meta. It's more uh, as as opposed to more meta. Ah, see, see what I did there. But um, yeah, I think that uh, Paper Pals just just noses ahead a little bit on that one. All right. All right. Ooh. So our winners in the first round for best episode are Chicken Little is a Little Chicken, Quickie Nirvana, Queen of Peru, and The Paper Palace. Yeah. All right. Let's go into most rock traditionists. Most rock traditionists. Yeah, let's do it. So these are both specific moments from episodes that we feel are just extremely Rockfordy, or mm-hmm. slightly larger scale elements that occur in multiple episodes that are like yeah. very Rockfordy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I think we left out uh some super obviously Rockfordish like we didn't say the Firebird. And we left characters like main characters are their own category, so like Angel's not in here. This is the most wild card <laughs> category. Let's do it. First pairing, we've got the business card printing press versus uh, Jim revealing in uh, two into five fifty six won't go that he once stole a tank while he mm-hmm. was in the army in in Korea. Uh, in the second pair up in this category, we have uh, Rockford and Beth their whole deal <laughs> uh, versus. Uh, the ice rink hostage money exchange from Feeding Frenzy. In the third, we have uh, the proofreader. It was in Local Man Eaten by a Newspaper. Yeah. He's just in the one, like, scene. Yeah. If you're going to keep nosing around here, you're going to have to talk to the proofreader. And he's this, like, huge gorilla of a guy at this, like, crooked newspaper publisher. Yeah. Uh, versus uh, the chili, which has too much garlic in it that Jim has to keep eating in... Uh, <laughs> The Attractive Nuisance. Mm-hmm. And then the final pair-up is uh, the Rockford and Ned Beatty and their handshaking sequence from Profit and Loss, where they mm-hmm. keep one-upping each other with how much how strong their grip is, versus the hot dog scene <laughs> in that same episode, or a pair of episodes. Profit and Loss is a two-parter, and I can't remember which part either of these in. I think they're both in the first part, I think, but it doesn't matter. So, the yeah, we end up with profit and loss versus profit and loss at the end here. The hot dog scene being the scene where Jim is trying to get information from a stockbroker about what might be going on. Uh, and he's doing it over some hot dogs. And, um, the, well, we'll talk more about it when we get to this pairing. Uh, so, Leon Fielder is the Leon Fielder. Baby character. So, it's a wide, this is a wide open one. Um, so we're going to start off with, uh, Jim being a tank thief versus his business card printing press. Yeah. So I think I brought up the tank thief one just cause it was this, uh, I feel like it was, it's a moment it's from two into five fifty six won't go, which isn't the greatest episode, but, um, has a lot about Jim's background in Korea. Yeah. His old commander is, I don't remember if he dies or if he's killed or it's made to look like an accident that he dies. And then his daughter is trying to find out what happened. And then there's this whole scheme about uh, stealing stuff from the army base, something like that. But yeah, so Jim has all of this past revealed to us as the audience. And one of the things is that he, he was given lots of weird jobs, like the one time he stole a tank. And we never yes. hear of it again. On the one hand, we have... Uh... Sergeant James Rockford, wounded in action, Silver Star. 
Then six months later, we have PFC, James Rockford, busted for trading uh, 400 cases of sea rations for a North Korean tank. Is this going on much longer? And then instead of being sent to the stockade for conspiring with the enemy, you receive a battlefield promotion to sergeant again. It probably doesn't say that Colonel Bowie asked me to scrounge a tank, that we needed to blow our way out of a pocket. I'm sure Colonel Bowie intended for you to scrounge one of our tanks from one of our units. As I remember, he wasn't terribly specific. And I like this because this this seems to parallel James Gardner's actual uh, history in in the military. Uh, I don't know if he ever stole a tank, but he, like <laughs> he was unlikely. in some sort of acquisition situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's up against kind of a titan here. Yeah. Uh, like if we if we don't include the Firebird and we don't include you know characters or you know things like that, um, would it come? It's not iconic. But the first time you realize that he has a tiny printing press <laughs> to freshly print up each of the business cards he needs for all of his various little cons, it's it's a moment of sheer wonder and joy. Yeah, it's like, oh, of course he does. This is perfect for him. Up to yes. in the movies where he starts using a little dot matrix printer in his car yeah. to print <laughs> individual business cards i mean yeah i think the business card printing press has to win this one of all the iconic jim rockford things that we didn't list this is this is yeah one to pick yeah i'm actually surprised just now it occurs to me that i'm surprised we didn't do the gun in the cookie jar Mm -hmm. Uh, it's too late now this is this is what we have to work with didn't make it to the semifinals or whatever these are called all right, so the next one is this one's going to be ridiculously hard for me. <laughs> Rockford and Beth, comma their whole deal versus the ice rink hostage money exchange from Feeding Frenzy, and much like the previous one, like Feeding Frenzy as a fun episode, but not like one of the ones that we are like super in love with or whatever. But this moment in it is just wonderful. This is like uh, it, if you recall, there's a public ice skating rink people Mm -hmm. are ice skating they've arranged to make a hostage exchange for the money in the middle of this rink and as they're doing it people stop ice skating and just watch it happen as these mobsters and jim walk out on the ice without skates on and uh there's carousel like carnival music playing yeah uh there's an accountant with a calculator to make sure that the money is correct (laughs) um it's yeah, it's just chef kiss. I think in our oh. episode, we talked about how while this isn't the greatest episode of the Rockford Files, this might be one of the greatest Rockford Files scenes in the entire yeah. series. It's just so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. Yeah. Uh, that said. That's up against Jim and Beth, their whole deal. <laughs> uh, I think the reason why this is most Rockfordishness for me is that like uh, this relationship resists the gravity of all TV romances, hmm. right? Like this is not any other TV romance. This, their relationship immediately feels real and lived in, like not, you know, fresh and all googly eye over each <laughs> other. <laughs> it's not the center of everything. Uh, they often are at odds and they aren't sure where they are with each other. Uh, but it's, yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it. That's very, very Rockford for me and not, uh, of any other television show. And it's complicated by the fact that she's not in the last season and there's, I mean, she does come back in the movies, right? She came back in, yeah, in the third movie, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but it's, you know, it's not a happy ending. It's not... Um, yeah, there's no resolution. Yeah, it's, it's it feels like a real-life thing. Uh, so, yeah. The only thing, or I guess the main thing that is tipping me away from Jim and Beth, their whole deal, is that Beth is in the character bracket. And yeah. I feel like, you know, that kind of is part of her as a character. I mean, if this was up against something else, I don't know. I just feel like the, the icebreak exchange is just so perfect. It's it's hard for well, me to toss it out in the first round. <laughs> I am I am split enough that I will defer to you on this one. And uh, to all the listeners who were rooting for Rockford and Beth, their whole deal... You can blame Nathan. Yep, yep, that's my fault. I think <laughs> I think maybe that'll lend in her favor in her bracket. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe I'll I'll shift some credit over there. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't need it. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss that when we get to the, that bracket. It's just kind of like, oh, you want to watch a scene from the Rockford Files? Here you go. Yeah. Okay, what's next? We've got the proofreader in Local Man Eaten by Newspaper versus Too Much Garlic in the Chili from... <laughs> The attractive music. Right. So these are both gags. I picked the proofreader mainly because he's the most memorable of this idea of the like the heavy that's kind of a joke, right. but Jim has to take seriously because there's a risk of physical danger. What do you think? I eh? think he's telling the truth. And I'm uh, you want to keep this ape off of me. What's the matter? You afraid you might hurt him? Look, if a 14 year old girl can trash a Kodiak bear, I kick him out of here. Hey, hey, now, wait. I know my way out, pal. I think that that's a fair play there. I like to expand it out to it being a instance of a greater, of a, of a larger uh, thing. Uh, I, I am so drawn to too much garlic in the chili, though, because it's, it's, so good. it's just a good bit. It's just a good bit. It's a, it's a good bit. It also involves, like... Jim and Rocky, because it's like yeah. Rocky's friend is the chef, yeah. and Rocky doesn't want to tell him that there's too much garlic, so Jim isn't going to tell him. <laughs> he just reaches into that powdered garlic and throws it in. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we should just go with our gut on this right off the bat. Yeah. Um, go with the, the Jim and the garlic. Yeah. Not to undersell the proofreader. All right. So now we have profit and loss versus profit and loss. We have uh, the handshake sequence with Leon Fielder, played by Ned Beatty, uh, versus the hot dog scene. Yeah, and that's with uh, Arnold Love is the character, and he's the uh, like the accountant guy. For some way, we can have just two meaty hands sculpted out of hot dogs. <laughs> uh. Okay, I'm going to make a pitch for the hot dog scene. This may not be the most Rockfordishness, but it's the most 200 a dayishness sure, of sure. all the scenes. This is where you and I and all of our joys come together mm-hmm. in a single moment. Uh, it's Jim working out the the nitty gritty, the nuance of some weird financial thing. Arnold Love telling Jim exactly what his time is worth right so that's why he's getting such a deal getting this advice for just the price of a hot dog yes and and it's done over food it's specifically done over a hot dog where they're standing chili dogs in fact chili thing if i remember right yeah that said i I do want to do offer some 
argument for the handshake because that is a wonderful moment of status play. Right. The handshake's all about status play, which is something we talk about a lot as a well-handled uh, uh, element of Rockford narratives. Yeah. The scripts are always looking at status and raising status and dropping status and all the ways that Jim takes advantage of status. And that whole sequence is like each trying to get the best of the other but they're being polite with their words but their hands are really telling the real story and you get exactly the encapsulation of like jim will let this guy think that he's winning until the moment that jim is ready to turn the tables on him would you let go of my hand this is very childish what oh it is isn't it we spend a pretty good amount of time in our episode talking about the sequence because it's like just so well uh, uh, blocked, I guess, and like just well done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my vote is for the hot dog scene, but it is a is a close one. I guess for me, since the category is Rockfordishness, mm-hmm. that is more Rockfordy. A drama over a handshake isn't necessarily Rockfordy. It sounds like you're talking yourself back into the handshake as you're going along there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I'm with you. I think I okay. When we initially did it, I was like, oh, I think this is one of my one I, I'm I'm going to go to bat for. But as you've made your pitch for the hot dog scene, um, <laughs> I'm on board with it having more, as I said, uh, uh, Rockford umami. It's a it's a yes. chewier uh, yes. bit. So uh, that leaves us then in this category. The the winners being the business card printing press, the tiny business card printing press, the ice ring hostage money exchange, uh, too much garlic in the chili, and the hot dog scene. And uh, oh I think that that's that next set of matchups. That's a spicy mix. It's, it's a spicy <laughs> yeah. chili. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's hurt ourselves. On to region two. Jim's World. Uh, This category may actually be not the easiest necessarily, but maybe the quickest to get through with the best core character. Uh, Best core character, we have Rocky versus Rita. Oof. (laughs) We have Beth versus Billings. And I'm just going to go ahead and give Beth the win on that one, but we'll talk about it. Dennis versus Gandhi. And Angel versus the combo Chapman and Deal. Uh, We talk about this in our plus expenses, but... Uh, it's not that Chapman and Deal are the same character, uh, but they fit kind of the same niche, and um, right. it would be difficult for us to favor one over the other. Mm-hmm. Should we stop with start start with the most heartbreaking category of them all? Rocky versus Rita. <laughs> uh, it's the heart of gold versus the heart of gold. <laughs> Two people that you most want to have over for dinner. Yeah, if you if if this one if this was the boat. And there was, a, and it was sinking, and I can only save one of them. I would just go down with the boat. <laughs> <laughs> this world isn't worth living in. Yeah. Okay. That said, Rocky is more central to the Rockford Files than Rita is. Yeah. He's more central to Jim as a character, and we already gave Rita a win with the Paper Palace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I literally just scrolled up to remember how that went down. I'm with you. It was. Rita's bad luck in this category to be, uh, it's everyone's bad luck in this category. Yeah. This is the most unfair category. Yeah. It it will be more difficult next round. Mm -hmm. Well, anyways, let's go on to the next one. We have Beth versus Billings. Billings, thank you for showing. Yeah, we <laughs> Billings. This was this was like we want to honor the fact that Billings is the greatest minor character. Um, yeah, he gets a line occasionally, and it's just so nice. 
in the movies he's been promoted. I think he's Sergeant Billings in the movies. I feel like putting him against Beth is a little bit like like giving him the the swift death he deserves <laughs> instead of dragging it out. <laughs> he doesn't need to go farther. You lost to Beth. Then it's fine. <laughs> Most of these people will lose to Beth. But okay. Uh, right. Dennis versus Gandhi. This is slightly tougher, but I just, I love Dennis so much. Yeah, uh, it's hard. And, this is kind of a, fo- like, this whole category is a little, maybe it was a little uh, uh, misconstrued. Like, maybe this was a mm-hmm. mistake to to frame it this way. Because it's <laughs> like, really, like, there's there's four, like, actual core characters. Are we really not going to... That's yeah, fun. yeah. Uh, or maybe we should have done the matchups a little differently. I don't know. I guess the other thing with Gandhi is just the first Gandhi episode when we did that and had not re- remembered how mm. that first episode went down. It's, he is a complicated character. Yeah, yeah. Gandhi is a great character, but that first episode makes things difficult. Yeah, and it's like, what? Are we going to knock Dennis out? No. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this last matchup, I think, I think. Subconsciously, I just did it so that I could <laughs> give Angel a win over the cops. <laughs> uh huh. I mean, I think it's worth talking about how we have Chapman and Deal kind of in this because they're in the, that same slot. Um, though overall, like Chapman is in more of the episodes. Yeah, uh, he's a stronger presence. He's a more filled out character as we go along. So, like, if we were yeah. doing Chapman versus Deal, I would go Chapman. Um, but uh, yeah, they are. This is a necessary role in the structure of the show, but we can yeah. give Angel a win over the cops. That's what are we going to do? Not do that? For that one moment, he gets to win. Ironically, next time he's going up against the cop. Right. <laughs> okay. I don't think I used ironically correct there, but. Right. So yeah, shockingly, Angel, Rocky, Dennis, and Beth are our winners. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for core character. If you if you were if you went to the bookies and you didn't bet on this, like <laughs> you yeah. deserve that loss. All right, over to our other side of this region with best gym fast talk. Yes. Uh, all right. So this one probably is going to take a little bit more explanation. This is one of the categories that we did that uh, was a little hard for us to nail down what we actually meant by the category. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we've got. Uh, three pair-ups that are very specific moments, and then we have, uh, at the end of the category, just two broader concepts of how he does his fast talk. The first one is in the competitive edge. Uh, he He's talking his way into this health club. The private health club that uh, something mysterious is going on. I forget exactly why, what he's hired to do, but uh, right. this is the one where he ends up in the one flew over the cuckoo's nest-like situation. Yeah, yeah. If you remember that episode. Uh, but the specific fast talk is he pretends to be a newspaper reporter to get into the club because he's doing a story or whatever. Uh, first, he gets in through the gate with a wallet gimmick that I just remembered. Where he, oh. like, gets into the gate by saying that he, like, left his wallet oh, and yeah, needs yeah. to go in to get it. And he doesn't want to trouble anyone to come down and bring it to him or whatever. And then once he's on the grounds, he claims to be a newspaper reporter. He uses the fact that he could publish a damaging story to get leverage for them to tell him things quote off the record. And those are the things he actually wants to know because he's not actually going to publish any stories. Right. Yeah. That I just remembered that as being like a really uh, elegant 
con uh or elegant piece of 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 strategy for jim to be like i'll threaten you with the thing you think i am to get the information that i actually want that is not relevant at all to what i'm telling you i'm here to do just because they belong to the same private sex club doesn't necessarily mean the indicted embezzler and the councilman are friends but the association cannot be denied i'll own your newspaper if i see that in print this is not a sex club I don't want to cause any problems. I just want to get some background on Barry Browder. Now, his wife tells me he's a devotee of yours. Uh, you're like a father figure to him. Hardly. We consult only in the areas of diets, vitamins, and exercise. And the councilman's landfill briefing, that is uh, health-related also? Can we talk off the record? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's a nice misdirect, and it's uh, it's... Great in this category because it is um, him uh, thinking on his feet, changing, adapting to the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sec- what it's up against is from just another Polish wedding. In this episode, he's trying to find somebody who has inherited money that they don't know about, right? Right. The interesting thing about – well, there's many interesting things about this episode. But one of the fun things about this episode is that we are actually just getting Jim's – lackluster day-to-day grind mm-hmm. of his job intermixed with all of what's going on with Gabby and Gandy. Uh, and this is a moment where he's talking to a florist because he knows that there is, he wants to find out who's been putting flowers on a grave. Yeah. Yeah. And he's posing as like, like some service that does it and he's taking over the account. And so he needs to know like what yeah. flowers they've sent and all of it is to get an address, right? He wants, he's trying yeah. to find out where this, the mother of the person he thinks he's trying to find is buried because he has a name, like a last name and that's it. Yeah. And I, and I think what I really like about this con, and it's a thing I don't think we talk about a whole lot, but Jim just has this encyclopedic knowledge of like retail jobs, right? Like, (laughs) like he knows what their concerns are and their, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, what, how to do the day to day patter of them and whatnot. And so this is a great example of that where he just is like, this seems legit. He, he just makes it up, but it feels and seems legit. Our service gets back to the essentials. Unfortunately, the uh, relatives of the deceased can't visit the graves personally. That doesn't mean that they don't want their love and sentiments expressed in a personal way. Well, what would you like me to do? I suppose I should look at the accounts and see what you've been supplying, and uh, I may want to make a change. Of course, of course. And he's and he just skates along with just enough yeah. authenticity to get a look at the like order pad, which is has the address, and that's all he needs to know. And then he yeah. gets out of there like as the florist is starting to question, like, wait a second, like this story doesn't really hang together. And he's like, all right, thanks so much, bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As soon as he gets what he needs, he's ready to peace out. I feel these are both fast talks that I don't remember all the details because we haven't seen them in a while. Uh, but right. they just kind of stuck with me. Where are you feeling? I'm leaning a little bit more towards uh, the florist one. And it might be just because that one's a little bit more vivid in my brain. But uh, like, I think I may am leaning towards the florist one because it, it, of that element of like, this is the thing he has to do. He's just going to do it. And he's just going to put in, in as much effort that needs to be done and then just get out. All right. Do you have a, do you have a preference? I mean, I think I was slight, slightly leaning towards the competitive edge one just because the structure of it was so 
so good. But at the end of the day, he doesn't. I mean, he finds out information that he's looking for, but then he also gets drugged and gets shipped yeah. off to this uh, you know facility <laughs> in Georgia or whatever. So it's not necessarily successful. Full? I, yeah, I don't know if that's a criteria, though. I don't um, know if it is, but I'll I'll go I'll go with the florist one. I think I'm willing to to go with your gut on this one. All right. So next up, we have Pastoral Prime Pick. Uh, he does this trick with a, a walkie-talkie. Uh, uh, so this one is the least fast-talkie of them, right? Yeah, this is more like a clever thing that he does, and this. Um, we might be getting some details wrong, and I didn't have a chance to review the scene before we did this. Oh, but yeah. from what I remember, it's where the like crooked cop kind of catches, like kind of. I don't remember if he pulls him over or he comes ac- upon him while Jim's doing something else or whatever. But he, yeah, um, is in a situation where it's like Jim versus this cop who clearly has ill intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this whole bit where he leaves his walkie-talkie out, and Jim is able to turn it on and off surreptitiously and hear what he's talking about inside the car. Yeah. And that gives him information about like the real person that he needs to figure out, like the real bad news going on in uh, Pastoria. Um, and yeah, so that, that whole bit has stuck with me. Uh, I'll have to review the scene and we will, if, if this goes through to the next round, we'll definitely review these scenes before our next, uh, our next episode. So that one is up against, uh, the reincarnation of Angie. And uh, <laughs> I actually need a refresher on this one too. So, <laughs> This is the this is one where he calls ahead. I remember this one better. Um, so this is where uh, the reincarnation of Angie. He's been hired kind of by Angie, whose brother gave her a mysterious phone call and then disappeared. And turns out he's been murdered. Yeah. Um, but he's this like stockbroker or whatever. And Jim is going to his firm to find out more. And so he sets up his own cover. Hi, Susan. Susan, this is Jan at the switchboard. Do you have a Mr. Jim Rockford from the county tax assessor's office there? Okay, well, thanks anyway. Um, If he shows up, tell him there's a Mr. Stovall from his office looking for him. Okay. He's not there. Well, Rockford had better get on the ball, or he's going to be balancing figures for another agency. Mr. Gorman's on to him already. Mr. Gorman? Mr. Gorman. Look, I'll be in the uh, coffee room if he shows up. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I am really sorry. I got hung up in traffic. Are you Mr. Rockford from the county tax office? Right, right. Well, listen, why is it when you're going down the freeway, there's an accident on the other side of the divider, everybody in your lane stops to look at the accident? What, do uh, they want to see blood or something? Everybody Mr. In the Rockford, right... apparently there's somebody from your office who's been looking for you downstairs. Oh, that's a Stovall. He's supposed to run the tapes out of the accounting department anyway. Oh. Uh, and that's establishes his credibility enough to get him into the room he needs to get into where he gets to talk to the secretary for uh, uh, the guy who's dead, who he then cold reads and keeps kind of pushing to give all of the dirt and all the gossip that's been going on that she knows she shouldn't be telling, but he's there as like an auditor or whatever. And he's very like, well, you know, if that's happening or just between you and me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think he also gives her a good dose of blather um, at the end, yeah. but the whole calling ahead to set up his own alibi, I think is really the nice yeah. bit there. I think that's the one that I'm leaning towards. It's, yeah, it's so hard to make these decisions because yeah. that was the one that I was grasping at when we, because it 
if you listen to the plus expenses episode, it was one where I, I couldn't remember what episode it was in, but I could remember what was happening mm-hmm. in the scene to set it up. And that um, definitely stuck with me. Yeah, I'll go with that. It's fresher in my memory as well. Um, yeah. And I remember we really, really liked the, the, the woman that he's playing with in that scene. She was yeah. really great. All right. And next up in this category, two more specific ones uh, from Hoof Boy. <laughs> uh, the very first 200 a day episode tall woman in red wagon uh in this one so this is where he pretends to be a funeral director and he puts this sort of pressure on and this is uh i think this one very much sticks with me because this is the first time you and i actually started di- dissecting the mm-hmm. fast talk right this yes. is he uses this funeral directory uh persona to put some pressure on people with one of his printed cards he this is he uses the the printing press in this episode this one's good because it has like all of these elements together and i do think it sits at a high spot in my mind because again it was the first where we actually started dissecting it he's telling the person that he's uh got this job he's a funeral director he needs something done this person shouldn't do the thing that he wants them to do but also it doesn't really matter that much to this person and Mm. jim is able to present slightly more of a troubling like he's like oh i'm gonna be in real trouble if this happens you know that kind of thing so that's why this one stuck out to me now it's up against uh Six and stones may break your bones, but Waterberry will bury you. Here on out, known as Waterberry. <laughs> uh, it's with all the PIs that they're trying to figure out who's taking out the PIs in town. Um, it's yeah. this private firm, Waterberry. Uh, there's this big climactic scene where they're getting the files from their offices, and Vern is on the roof uh, throwing beer bottles around and pretending like he's going to jump. And then Jim and uh, the other detective, played by Cleveland Little, um, are coming out at the bottom, and they've gotten the files or whatever, and there's these two cops that are in the lobby. Hold it! What are you two doing here? Where's the nearest liquor store? I said hold it! Answer me! The man on the roof has demanded more beer, now we're gonna get it. You two were up there? We're police psychiatrists. Now stop wasting time. I gotta get over to the man's home and coach his wife. There's Barry's wine cellar near Camden. Okay, you get on that, Hank. I'll uh, get a black and white. Go over to the man's home, code three. Now, uh, he wants Rocky Mountain brand. And then literally as they walk out the door, they start to seem to be like, wait a second. But it's too late. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that one's got my vote in this one. Oh, yeah? Because I know what's coming up in the next, uh, the very next pairing. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think, I think the first one in this pairing, the, the tall woman in red wagon is, uh, it is made up of all the parts. Sure, sure. Right. That we want to like celebrate. But this one is like part of it is just the gall of suggesting that they need to get him alcohol. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's just ridiculous enough that you're like, okay. And then yeah, it gives them just the time they need. Yeah. Um, it might be a little bit of uh, recency just because it's been so long since we saw tall yeah. woman in red wagon, but um, I will uh, throw out a shout out for his, he has a line in there where he's saying that he's from uh, mahogany hall, uh, the Oak yes. library of slumber chambers, which is one of the great Rockford <laughs> oh, Files lines. Oh, damn it. It's in our Twitter bio. <laughs> Um, I may be turning turning around on this. Well, I can be convinced. As Jim Fast Talk, I don't know. I kind of want to give it to to Tall Woman in a Red Wagon just to give give us the excuse to revisit that. Sure. It's been so long, and we can see if it holds up. And if it doesn't hold up, it'll go down in the next round. You convinced me. <laughs> 
And then I don't have to say Waterbury next round. <laughs> and the final pairing in this category is the the less concrete things. Yeah, the more global. These are more global categories of fast talk. Yeah. And they are uh, the what we're calling the time-pressured working man. This is when Jim, uh, much like we described in the previous category, comes in and just presents himself as just another working schlub who has concerns. He has a boss breathing down his neck, mm-hmm. and he has a time pressure. And if you could just help another another working man out, yeah, that would be great. Uh, versus the bureaucratic words view. And this is... <laughs> Where Jim comes in and just starts presenting himself with more authority by saying nonsense that sounds like, yeah, of course, this is like, I, I need to have a an X-28 filled out and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, just as you were talking, a couple examples that we haven't already talked about uh, for the time press uh, working man. I, my mind went to um, one with the, the racing one just just by accident. Yeah, so my mind goes to uh, Just By Accident, which is not uh, a great episode, but there's a bit where he's using a magazine subscription to track down an a-, a new address. And so he calls yeah. and then poses as being like someone else in the publisher's office and just needs this one favor because you know mm. how this publisher is and blah, 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 um, and gets it. Yeah. Um, and then the bureaucratic word spew... In uh, uh, the trees, the bees, and TT flowers, he does that. Uh, he's kind of posing as a doctor or as a auditor yeah. of doctors or something to like get in. Yeah, it's okay, Steve. Doctor Chris and I have a understanding. Of course, I still have to go through the motions, so I guess we can start by uh, checking the BU quotient against the tattle sheet, huh? Uh, BU quotient? What is this? Are you new here? Bed units. Bed units. Bed units? I'm just the van driver usually, sir, and uh, the mechanic, too. And I only work at the desk on Tuesdays they and Thursdays, so... They don't even teach the basics anymore. Let me see your room sheet, please. Uh-huh. Okay, okay, that's perfect. Of course, I knew it would be. I'll start with J-Wing. He just spews out all these things that clearly are not real, but... <laughs> get yes. Him, get him past the desk. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a really tough one for me. They're both very Rockfordy. Yeah, they're it's they both illustrate just the skill of his mm-hmm. in in coming at it from two different categories. Like like I mentioned before, one of the things that makes the working man thing really work is that he just has this knowledge of like how every job sucks. Mm-hmm. And the the other one is just he's dealt with authority enough that he he knows how to sound it. Oh god, it's so tough. So, we kind of already have two uh, time-pressed working man and one bureaucratic oh, words yeah. spew represented in our other picks. Does that tip okay. you? Maybe. I mean, why not? <laughs> I feel like I'm so even whatever it takes. Then I'm going to... Oh, man. What's what's more Jim? Yeah. That's the thing. They're both, like, equally... They're, like, two halves of his, of his whole deal. Yeah. I am more drawn to the time press working man because that is literally what his con is about. Like the time press working man, you're supposed to identify with the bureaucrat. You're supposed to fear. Yeah. And so I identify with the time press working man, but that's me just falling for the con and me falling for both cons. I'm I'm (laughs) going to go with time press working man. I think that's more who that's closer to who Jim really is. Right. Because at the end of the day, he is a time-pressed working man when yeah. he's doing these things. And 
while the bureaucratic word spew is more of like taking on, I'm overthinking this. Uh, I just like it a little bit more. So we'll give yeah. that the win. <laughs> That's <what we'll> do. <laughs> yeah. This one is, would be really easy to overthink. And also I would note that this is the most ridiculous choice to make. All right. All right. So our winners in Beth Jim Fastock are the uh, florist patter from um, Just Another Polish Wedding, the Oakline Slumber Chambers from Tall Woman and Red Wagon, uh, the Giving Yourself an Alibi plus the Cold Read from Reincarnation of Angie, and the uh, concept of the time-pressed working man Fastock. Yes. So on to Region 3, Gas and Gangsters. Yeah. So here we have the best car chase versus the best villain. Um, so the car chases was kind of interesting because I think we both had specific moments, but it was hard to remember what episodes they were in. Yeah. <laughs> so we did have to do some a little bit of digging. Uh, some of them might be specific, but uh, representative of a larger category. There might be a more pure example of this kind of chase in a different yeah. episode, but this is the one that we remembered it was in. Yeah, we're we're definitely running up against the the limitations of uh, uh, of our resources and of our brains, our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, the first pairing we have here is uh, from the dark and bloody ground. This one is uh, a desert scene. Jim is out on his own and he's being chased by a semi. And it's, I think at the time, very mysterious as to why it's happening. Mm -hmm. He goes to, I don't remember if he goes to Vegas or if he goes to a town. He goes to a town outside of Vegas, I think. Um, yeah. And he pokes around. We see a guy in sunglasses follow him in like a semi cab. And then, yeah, yeah. there's this like extended chase sequence. He's also not in the Firebird, if I remember right, because he rented a car. Yeah, it's a rental car. Yeah. And so he's got issues with top speed. There's, it, it's an interesting chase in how it contrasts against how other chases have been done and maybe how the chase would be done today because we get a lot of pictures of the uh the odometer we get like we have an understanding of the driver's concerns yeah we see like their feet on the pedals and yeah there's oncoming traffic that they both have to avoid and then whether they're going uphill or downhill really matters because he's yeah. faster uphill but the truck's faster downhill it's a really like thought out and it feels like a scene done by somebody who has driven a lot yeah and not uh like imagined what the scene what a good chase scene would be which is i think in great opposition to <laughs> the what it's up against here which is from the episode guilty and this is the helicopter chase this is the maybe the biggest budget car chase scene <laughs> in all of the rockford files uh the, the helicopter tries to chase him into a hangar. Yeah, so this is so the the episode's guilt is the one where he has the very emotionally abusive ex-wife who comes back to him for help, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It turns out there's this plot that involves a flight instructor, and the uh, climax of the episode is that this flight instructor has kind of gone off the rails and decided he just needs to kill everyone. So he gets in his helicopter that he gets to fly because he's a flight instructor and starts chasing mm -hmm. down, chasing them down in the, in the firebird. Uh, the, the drama of it is seeing the helicopter getting closer to them and Jim's going into different places and trying to get away from it. And they bump the roof a couple times to like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That sense of danger. And then the big climax is Jim goes into a hangar. Cause we're at some like in some industrial area. So it goes into this big warehouse 
and the helicopter follows mm-hmm. him into the warehouse. But the other side of the warehouse, the doors are too closed, and the car can fit through them, but the helicopter can't. And so it yes. hits him and explodes. <laughs> oh, good times. So that's extremely dramatic, and I think memorable because, like, hey, a helicopter explodes. Also, yes. tonally, it was really weird because it was like, I guess that guy died? Yeah, I, I think listeners who haven't listened to that episode, uh, if they watch the episode, should mm-hmm. go back and listen to what we have to say about that episode, because I think there's a lot of... Uh, it's a challenging episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm leaning towards the semi in the desert because uh, of the craft of it. Uh, yeah. Not to say that this the other one was poorly crafted, but... The other one is technically interesting yeah like it's shot really well to create a sense of danger even though it's like what is this helicopter gonna do like it's not like he has a gun right like he's just flying over them but it does create a sense of drama and urgency and you do get to see a helicopter explode but um yeah yeah no the the uh dark and bloody ground has a that is a i think it's an all-time great uh driving sequence that that would be my vote all right that's easy then Mm -hmm. uh next up we have the uh, girl in the Bay City Boys Club. The way I have it in my notes here, this is one where he uses the drive-thru. Uh, mm-hmm. He goes into the drive-thru and, and has them call the cops. Versus Second Chance, and this is the one in my notes, where he uses the dumpster. He pushes a dumpster into another car. And I think that this matchup is kind of fun because this is both, uh, the, these are both interesting uses of what's available to him in a chase sequence. And this is a thing that we, I think we do talk about quite, uh, quite a bit on the show. It's just that what makes Rockford Files chase sequences stand out is that, that, um, spatial awareness is not what I'm looking for. Well, it's like situational awareness. Yes. Yeah. Like, He's using stuff around him more than can he drive faster and turn tighter corners than this person. Yeah, it's kind of like a, I think we haven't talked about this in a while because we really haven't had a really meaty car chase in a while, but it's kind of like a tactics versus strategy thing, right? It's like, Jim's great at strategy. Like, how am I going to get out of this in the most efficient manner without losing my skin versus like how good am I at taking tight corners, which is more like, am I going to turn down this driveway or down that one? That's more of a tactical decision versus these like, all right, so I'm getting followed. It's at low speed. This person clearly just wants to see where I go. So I'm just going to pull into this drive through. And then when they ask me what my order is, they call the police. I'm being followed. (laughs) And then order some food. A taco and some fries. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I So I proposed this one both because I think this really stood out to me uh, just as a great little moment. And then what ends up happening is they continue following him through the drive-thru and then they do get called out, pulled over by the cops. And then he gets to observe who gets out of the car and turns yeah. out as this reporter that is trying to figure out the same thing he's been trying to figure out uh but also that episode has a great foot chase at the end where the two of them are being pursued by goons through like a like a like a y or something like a boys club a boys yes the boys club in bay city (laughs) it's like a scooby-doo chase where it's like there's all these doors and corridors and people keep coming in and out of them chasing each other but the way that the camera is and the way that's all cut you see where everyone is and you can follow a very chaotic chase uh i just remember really liking that so i wanted to kind of fold that in with the car chase um (laughs) in this category that's also the only episode directed by uh james garner oh yeah that's right well, I, I'm very much in favor of giving it to the drive-through maneuver in um, that one. I, I, it's not that I have a problem with the dumpster maneuver, but what really stands out to me is just that he's pushing a dumpster into another car. 
Uh, and I just love that gimmick. That sequence does have some more fun stuff because I think there's a J turn in it. Um, yeah, very tight quarters. Yeah, guys try to get in his car and then he zooms away and then they pursue him. Um, yeah. He gets cut off and then he goes into this thing and then he nudges the dumpster like to hit the other car so it can't keep pursuing him so it is a fun sequence yeah. it's not just the one move it, i think the other one edges up just a little bit in my mind okay i'll take it and, and because we have to make decisions that's that is the burden we placed upon ourselves <laughs> all right so this next pair up is another one uh within the same two-parter uh this is gear jammers <laughs> versus gear jammers um the first one of this pair up is actually uh rocky is driving a semi cab <laughs> in the chase and this is like the climatic chase near the end of the the two-parter the other one i don't remember if this is in the second part or the first part uh it's in the second part because i think i just looked it up it's near the beginning of the second part so this other one is another a car chase mixed with like some good psychological uh things going on where he's being chased by the goons he's getting roughed up outside his trailer and then there's like witnesses so he manages to get away from yes. the goons and they take off in pursuit so it's like a real like he's being chased by the two goons uh one with an amazing mustache um yes and they end up cutting him off and forcing him under an overpass into like a fenced area so he's blocked but he had the presence of mind to grab his gun at some point so once yeah, they get I, out, he gets the drop on them with his gun, and that's enough cover for him to go pull their like tire gauge thing to yeah. flatten their tire. And they have banter and everything. And I've been in this business a long time. I've run into a couple of guys who can stay with me. They got a little sloppy doing it. Nobody ever made it look easy. Just like to say it's an honor to be tailed by somebody who can drive as good as you do. Now get up on the roof. One of the important bits of this one is also that this is set up for a sort of car chase rivalry between him and this goon. Yeah, I think they do another chase. Yeah, and it's a little bit like, oh, okay, I under you're good, mm -hmm. and now I have to worry about that. And right, and then so the one with Rocky is that's like the climax of the episode where they're like getting the bad guy. Yeah. And and Rocky gets to be the hero where he's behind the wheel and like yeah. running down the um the the guy in the limo or whatever and and Jim is there also we have to look at it again but I remember there being drama with like who's on what side of who and who's getting right. cut off by who and and everything so yeah oh it's a tough call which way are you leaning what am I which way are you leaning uh, which way I kind of want to give it to Rocky. Uh, and yeah. I know that that's not the best way to decide this. And like the next one is going to be full of J turns. Yeah. And it's going to cover some of what the second part of this episode mm -hmm. did. But I, I'm like, that is, I'm already overselling my lean here. I'll give it to right. Rocky. Sounds I think good. it's fun. It's, it's like, uh, there's a moment in, um, in the attractive nuisance also where Rocky gets to be behind the wheel of a truck and just like save the day. And like, yeah. that's just so fun. And this time he actually gets to drive. For that, he's just crashing into a trailer or whatever. So we'll give it to Rocky. All right. So next up, this pairing is Waterbury. See uh, previous category mm -hmm. for the full title. Uh, versus Rosendahl and Gilda Stern are dead. Mm -hmm. These are both featuring uh, J-turns. This is the J-turn off. Yes, the J-turn off. And so this one, uh, honestly, like... 
I already have decided which one I like best in this one. Uh, Waterbury has a Corvette, which should mm-hmm. make it my favorite, but it's not. Um, <laughs> in the other one, uh, the has the reoccurring gimmick of Jim throwing his car into a parking lot so that those pursuers would just drive right by him, which yeah. is a great thing. And I think the the Rosendahl and Gilderstern one is just well shot. Yeah, the the Waterbury one is kind of more like it's fun because it has the fun car, the Corvette that's following. Yeah. It also has like the goons kind of interacting with Jim a little bit more. Yeah. But if we're looking at car chases, I can't even really remember how the Waterbury one ends. Like we know there's a J turn in it, but yeah, the Rosendahl and Gilderstern where he does, first of all, it does a J turn from a dead stop, which is amazing. It's a brief but exciting chase. Just a yeah. Rockford all-time classic bit of pulling into the parking lot and ducking down. So we'll give it to that. Sounds good. Should we move on to best villains? Oh, wait. Do we want to just recap who won this this best car chase? Desert car chase with the semi from Dark and Bloody Ground. Uh, the pulling into the uh, fast food spot with honorable mention for foot chase in girl and bay city boys club rocky saves the day from gear jammers and the j turn into the parking lot bit from rosendahl and Gil- all right so now we're on to the villain category which was at, at one point a two categories <laughs> maybe even more we definitely had some trouble figuring out how we're going to do it, but I think we got a good set here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about villains, goons. Uh, we ended up kind of combining it all. So, uh, yeah. So uh, at the top of our villains category, oh God, why did we do this to ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> here we go. The very first pairing that we have to decide here uh, is Anthony Boy, who if you've been listening to the past. We have done two episodes of two two-parters. Yeah. So we've talked about Anthony Boy uh, a lot recently. So if you're just tuning in, yeah. <laughs> if this is your first episode, first of all, you have a lot of faith in uh, our ability to convey what our show is about. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've spent a lot of time in the uh, in the Anthony Boy world where he is the uh, mob hitman from who works for the Manette Syndicate mm-hmm. in New York and has come out to... LA for reasons uh, in the first episode he appears in it's uh, he and his his buddy Syl are on the hunt for a uh, a, a woman who's kind of left her mob lawyer fiance at the altar and yeah. they end up getting all wrapped up with uh with the cops and with the cop uh, fan who's kind of the subject of the actual episode um but Anthony Boy ends up shot by the police at the end of the episode, but he blames Rockford. And so in Man Who Saw the Alligators, that's all about Anthony Boy, where he's out of jail after three years or whatever, and he still has this pathological hate for Jim Rockford. And that's an episode that's all about the, the his his descent into, into darkness. Before we introduce who Anthony Boy is up against, let's push Anthony Boy just a little bit more here, because I, I also... I, one of the reasons why he's such a great addition to this category is, well, he's, I think, maybe the only reoccurring villain we have, mm-hmm. um, unless you unless you count Angel. Um, <laughs> or Chapman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's back from the dead in the second one. Like, in the first two-parter, we assume he's dead. It turns out he's not. He's He's got, like, a... He has a liver wound from his being shot, yeah. In addition to hating Rockford, which is, I I don't want to say forgivable, but, like, I think his greater sin 
is that he hates L.A. Yeah, he hates California. He just really hates California. And um, so he's we get a lot of him. And in the beginning, he is I, like, I'm going to say this is going to sound dismissive, but it's not. It's a he's just another Rockford villain. I mean, if you're a fan of the show, if you've been listening to us, that's actually a compliment. <laughs> He's a memorable side character from yes. To Protect and Serve. And then he becomes, in this later one, This uh, you get more of his backstory. Mm. He's trying to get out of the mob. He's blaming Rockford. He, doesn't, he has an ideology. He's arguing this ideology with Sill, who ostensibly shared it ahead of time. He's, it's just a well-fleshed-out character mm. yeah. who you could see him on his doomed course. And it's not so much that you root for him. Uh, but you can see why he, he can't correct his path and it's tragic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I bring all that up because we do have this, like, he is the most immediate, the most recent villain that we've had. So I, I want to counteract the, the bias there by pointing out that he actually is a really good villain. Right. It's not just that he happens to be the last villain that we saw. Yeah. Yeah. That said, <laughs> he is up against Gary Bevins. The DA from So Help Me God. And I would be hard-pressed to find a more infuriating villain in the series. He's kind of a wild ball pick. Uh, offbeat pick. Yeah. Because uh, he's he's not mobbed up. He's not a thug. He's using his power as a DA uh, to try to strong-arm Rockford. And the whole thing, the whole episode is around that. Uh, I, we talked about this earlier uh, because this one was up for uh, best episode mm -hmm. earlier in this and, and it lost to Quickie Nirvana. And I just want to like back then I said one of the things about this episode that really appealed to me was was that it, it had a, a thing to say and then it said it really, really well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it could have done that without Gary Bevan. Gary Bevins is played by William Daniels or Daniel Williams. William Daniels. William Daniels, the voice of Kit. Also, he's been in other television as well. Yeah, Mr. Feeney or Principal Feeney or whatever. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he's also one of the antagonists in the Italian bird fiasco. He's unlike many of the villains. I think, as you said, he's not a representative of um, crime or of mm -hmm. personal interest. Um, he is a representative of the state, but he's also just a jerk. <laughs> Yes. And he also does have some personal interest, interest in the sense that I think one of the kind of sub points about him is that he's angling for the next job yeah. up, right? Like he's a assistant DA and he's angling for state DA or, you know, some, I forget exactly. Yeah. But, uh, he's clearly on, has a career rise planned and nailing this case, which isn't about Rockford. Right. Um, but Rockford is this uncooperative witness. And so he turns both barrels of the power of his office onto Jim in order to, you know, get this prosecution underway, which is going to help him in the long run with his career. Uh, and so it's just so like, so like bureaucratically evil as opposed to like intrinsically or like motivated evil. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's like the needle that they're threading with this character, which is so great is that they can't, convey the message they want to convey with the episode if they make him corrupt. Right. 
he's got to be just believable in his ambitions mm-hmm. and the extent he'll, he's willing to go and his ability to not uh, his lack of empathy and it's it can't be the kind of lack of empathy that you think oh well this guy is just a sociopath or something mm-hmm. like that it's it's got to be the kind of lack of empathy that you would expect somebody in that role to have it's a it's a great character crafted for the moment that he's in and because he's in that position and because Rockford was put into it uh, against him, he make it like that's what makes him the villain of the story here. And uh, I, there's, I, there's I feel like there's something I want to say about that, which is <laughs> he's the villain of someone's story. We, we only get it because Rockford just happened into it. And that's the genius of this episode or one of the genius bits of this episode. Right. Yeah. Like it's just unfortunate circumstances that Rockford's involved at all because he was tangentially related in it's like the labor like the crooked labor guy yeah. who like fakes his own death and to abscond with the labor fund like the pension fund or whatever something like that and yeah. Jim is hired under false pretenses by a fake someone with a fake name just to give cover to the idea that this guy was abducted and so Evans is like, oh, well, you must have been in on it because he's using that tack to angle to get something to actually hang on the guy who's actually after. Yeah. And the arc of both of these villains here is the same and an arc that I find delicious (laughs) because of my (laughs) my uh, love for a certain type of sword and sorcery story uh, is that they they both have have turned their will against our hero, Jim Rock. Right, right. And, And Jim tries to give him out every step of the way. Like yeah. Jim's, uh, like, he's not telling Gary Bevins that he's going to like, Oh, if you do this, I'll tell you he's, he's like, you shouldn't be this way. This shouldn't be the way it is. Like I have rights. And Anthony boy, he spends that whole second two parter whenever he's interacting with Anthony boy, just trying to talk him out of doing any kind of violence. Trying to reason with him. Yeah. You just, you got to let it go. You know, uh, I think this is a really good pairing. It breaks my heart. It is, yeah. It's a we we gave ourselves a hell of a task here. Um, I feel like we have, as a moment in time, we have talked about Anthony Boy so much that I feel like right. he, he at this moment in our show was kind of like, you know what? Everyone knows what we think about him. He's great. <laughs> if you want to hear way more, yeah. listen to our last episode. Right? Does he need to? Also get highlighted here when we already knocked out. This is where we start doing like like offset credits from the other brackets. It's like, well, we did yeah. knock out, so help me God in best episode. But to make up for that, do we give this to Gary Bevins? Because <laughs> he's a great, you know, he's a great villain. It's like how people talk about the Oscars. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, they didn't give it there, but they'll give it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, here's my take on it. I'm just looking at the category of best villain, which we've not described all of it to our listeners and i apologize uh gary stands out in that he is understated and all the other ones are not overblown but great like they have more dramatic caricature to a lot of them so i i'm willing to give gary it because i I, because i want to see gary up against the others okay i think that anthony boy is a great character but um he i think he'll run you, you think he'll run roughshod over the category? No, I, I think that I think that it's less interesting to pit him against against some of these sure. other ones later on. 
I think we should go ahead and make this call for Gary Bevins, uh, if only on the strength of, yeah, how different he is from the other villains in the category, as you'll hear. And also, like, Anthony Boy gets a star for probably the most talked about villain in our show, like, <laughs> over the entire course of the show. So he gets an honorable mention no matter what. Uh, okay, so the next pairing here, This is another, these are all going to be tough. This one is Phil the Dancer Gabriel from Rosendahl and Gilderstern Are Dead, as played by Abe Vigoda, versus Dave Delarue from Portrait of Elizabeth, as played by John Saxon. Mm-hmm. And this pairing, uh, again, I don't want to pit actors against each other. Right. And I certainly don't want to pit these two actors against <laughs> each other. I would watch anything that had the two of them in it. Yeah. I, I, I want you to understand who the actors are for these uh, because that definitely helps you understand just how wonderfully portrayed these characters were. Mm-hmm. And so these are actually pretty different. Um, so yeah. Dave is, uh, uh, is, is Beth's, um, new boyfriend in A Portrait of Elizabeth. And so this is all about the, uh, sadly losing in the first round, Jim and Beth, their whole thing. Um, yeah. That's this episode is about uh, about that in in this way where it's highlighted by Beth's relationship with this guy Dave who starts off being extremely smooth and and interesting and caring but as time goes on we see more and more of his like weird like criminal mastermind plan yeah basically all about using beth as cover to get some like forged stock certificates out of the country something like that yes it's an episode i don't want to spoil it but definitely check it out if you haven't checked it out oh yeah It's it's definitely one of our one of our favorites um and a lot of it was about dave because in addition to being a antagonist for jim along the vector of beth's interest He's yeah. also this weirdly uh, fully rounded character with weird skills. Like uh, at that time, yeah. we were doing a lot more direct how to bring stuff into your games, right? From from shows, yeah. and he was like, "Here's a character that's been built with all these different abilities, and they just get shown <laughs> off." At different stages, and it's always a surprise and a delight. So it's like, oh, turns out he's a karate master, uh, yes. <laughs> which is a tie-in to the actor because he was known for a karate movie at the time and and whatnot. But anyway, like, turns out he's a karate master. Turns out he's a very skilled painter. Like, <laughs> he's he has all these like special abilities that actually are interesting in terms of presenting challenges for Jim to overcome. If, if somebody said, okay, if Jim is uh, a detective, then who's his Moriarty? Mm-hmm. I, without losing a beat, I would say John Saxon. And then I would have to think and look up IMDb and go Dave Delarue. Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, but like this character is the Moriarty uh, to Jim's Sherlock. Uh, Jim isn't Sherlock. That's one of the great things about Jim. Uh, but uh, Dave Delarue is Moriarty. Uh, he's just perfect in everything he does. He's got a temper which is uh, his weakness and one of the things that Jim manages to use against him. Mm -hmm. He also manages to put Jim in this spot where Jim is right, but Jim is wrong. And that is great Mm -hmm. because he's like, this guy's bad news for Beth, but also Jim needs to make a decision about Beth and they need to have a reckoning. And it's like, this is the wrong guy to make that happen obviously, but it uh, is one of the reasons why this episode works so well is that he's able to put Jim in that spot that Jim deserves to be in. And he also uses, especially in the first part, he uses status really well. 
Yeah. I have these tickets to the opera that, oh, I can't actually use. Why don't you take Beth? Like, yes. you know, doling out the scraps from his table to Jim. And it's just like yeah. pure and it's infuriating Jim. But what's he going to do? Say no. Like all the all of that stuff is like just so well rendered. And it's all pulled off by uh, by John Saxon in the role like really well. Yes. Uh, but we should talk about <laughs> Phil, the dancer Gabriel. here, Right. So Phil is... Rosendahl and Gilda Stern are dead. So the uh, second um, Rita episode. So Rita witnesses the abduction and yes. murder of the guy that she was uh, walking out with um, and who was a doctor. So she saw um, Mr. Gabriel, a Vigoda, in the car so she could identify him. And this whole thing is spinning out of a botched hip replacement. So... yes. Gabriel is an older man and he's this like vague, vaguely very important crime figure. The pressure is that he's going back to court for a tax thing. And once Rita sees him in the papers, she'll be able to identify him as the guy who had the doctor abducted. Yes. Um, he had him abducted because of the botched hip thing because now he's in pain he's in constant pain and that's like his character core all of the bitterness stemming from being in pain and him blaming the guy who did it who the guy who performed the operation so he blames for everything and he's he's got this power from frailty thing going Mm -hmm. that is so good and i I mean again we're going to talk about the actor but abe vigoda just really has the presence needed to make that happen. And I'm not saying he's the only one who has that presence, but it's, it was a delight to watch him do it. There's the whole, there's the scene in like the sauna or whatever, where his, uh, his mm-hmm. goons are getting his, you know, getting their marching orders yeah. lower than them. And he's all wrinkly and just wearing this little towel. And there's these two huge dudes in suits and they're obviously terrified. Yes. <laughs> she ain't doing me no good in the slam. Get her out. We're working on it, Mr. G. Doing what? Well, right now, we're, we're sort of waiting to see how things go, you know. Lou and me was thinking. We was thinking maybe we leave her where she is. Cops think they got a dead bang. I mean, she ain't walking away from this in a matter of speaking. That's what you thought, huh? Well, obviously, this is a very dumb broad. Otherwise, she's in Cincinnati, right? Her right the hotel knows her. What does she do? She goes home and waits for the cops to pick her up. What happens when I go to court? I thought Sid was working on a postponement. The government thinks I had too many postponements. They ain't buying no more. That tax beef comes up in a couple of weeks. I go into court. My picture hits the papers. What do you think happens? I'll tell you what happens. The bimbo sees it and says, hey, that's the guy I saw in the limo. Who they got dead banged then. Just tells us as, as audience how much power he has without having to tell us anything about his backstory, his history, yeah. any of that stuff. At the end... uh he cannot see that he's wrong, and uh, that's another like great angle on this character, right? Like he actually thinks what he's doing is correct, but not because he has some kind of like ideological blinders. He just no doesn't care about anything else. Like the only thing mm-hmm. that he actually cares about anymore is his pain, basically, yeah. and everything else is not very real to him. There's a very specific. They do a whole Moby Dick reference. In the episode. Yeah. You know, he's the obsessed whaler, you know, chasing after this idea that uh, uh, he can solve everything by basically killing everyone who caused him pain, uh, which is really messed up. (laughs) Uh, He's both distant and personal about it. Like in the beginning, he wants to watch Mm -hmm. uh, the, the doctor die. Like that's the 
the thing, but he's not doing, he's like commanding other people to do it. It's yeah. It's another one of these like well thought out characters that just stick with you. Uh, so Dave is like the central figure of that episode. Yeah. Um, while uh, Gabriel is the motivating force, but the central plot of the episode is more about Jim and Rita Figuring out what's going on, right? Yeah. And then they end up confronting him with the. There's a video of his surgery that, like, is kind yeah. of the confrontation that happens at the end. Um, he's more of a brooding menace in the background that becomes stronger and stronger. While with Dave, it's like, oh, he's he's the guy. We're watching him pretty yeah. much the whole. I mean, through Jim's presence, but we're basically watching him the whole the whole episode. So, does that tip it one way or the other for you? I, I think this one has always been tipped for Dave Delarue for me. I don't want to make predictions about the end of this category, but <laughs> like if I if I were to put money down, you're buying you're buying stocks in Dave is what you're talking. I me. would, yeah, and it helps that I'm part of the decision making process. <laughs> <laughs> but still, like uh, Dave just really is one of my all time favorite villains from from the Rockford Files. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll take that. All right. Again, in the test of like, oh, do you want to see a Rockford Files episode with, uh, episode that like re- really nails the uh, anti Jim? Mm-hmm. That's that's one of them. There you go. Yep. <laughs> All right. In this next category, we have uh, Roman Cl- Clementi, mm-hmm. which is another little bit of an oddball choice uh, from the Oracle who wore a cashmere suit. Versus Electric Larry from Dirty Money, Black Light. Now, Roman Cl- Clementi is the uh, psychic detective. Yeah, he's the psychic investigator, please. So he's uh, a, a more of a, a foil? Yeah. I mean, so he ends up um, planting evidence essentially in order to um, in order to make his predictions about what Rockford knows come true, right? He makes these predictions and like he's, he's working with the police to solve this, like uh, as a disappearance, like a someone disappeared and they're trying to find them. We did this one a while ago, but if I remember right, the kind of not twist, but kind of the, the, the plot, it kind of is, is that the disappearance is not really the issue, but there is a murder that happened later. And that's what kind of throws everything into, into chaos. But, uh, but yeah, so Clementi, he like makes these predictions. He works, he's paid by the police departments to consult. And so he makes it his business to always have something to tell them, including planting evidence near Jim's trailer. So that when he says, Oh, I, I feel that there's something around here that's important to the case. And then, you know, he finds it and et cetera, et cetera. This feels to me like the closest we get to including Angel on this list. <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's a con man, essentially. Yeah. Uh, a nudge one way or the other, this show could have been, I'm not saying this would be a better show. Uh, in fact, I don't think it would be. But this show could have been like Rockford and Clementi, like at odds with each other over all these different kids. You know what I mean? Like you could see the eighties doing that. Mm-hmm. He's not as like mobby. <laughs> He's not as villainous in terms of like pointed at Jim. It's more that yeah. Jim is a very convenient target for his con. Yeah. And then Jim, of course, has no patience for as a con man himself has no patience for this particular genre yeah. of con where it's like, Oh, you're claiming some kind of special power to like pull the wool over other people's eyes. Would you like a cup of coffee? Sure. Maybe you can tell me how to take it. Hey, why don't you and I go find a nice private room and we can discuss all the trouble you've been causing me lately? Look, I'm sorry about the trouble, but you forget it's not me. I am just a vehicle which higher powers act through. 
bicycle rack was attached, I imagine. Ah, it looks too heavy to be a bicycle rack. Looks more like a motorcycle rack to me. But then you're the expert. What do you think about those gouges? You think maybe somebody tried to take the rack off without loosening it all the way? How much you paying these guys? I doubt if these dents are significant. Well, what is significant is that you missed it. I'll send someone after my equipment and to present you with a bill, Mr. Clemente. Yeah, there goes the old ESP. For me, this is not just the character, although the character is great and uh, worth watching, but um, it's also the the character being a specific concrete instance of a larger category of villain, which are the, sure. the con men that are just on the other side of the alignment, that they'll never actually be buddies with Jim. They're the con men that can hang out with Jim. The, and they're the, the con, con men, men who do it who do it wrong, right? Who who use their powers for evil. <laughs> um, yeah, and then the only other comment I think I have about this is that I remember from the episode that uh, just the the chemistry was really good. Um, Clementi is played by uh, Robert Weber, and uh, oh yeah, the the Rockford Clementi yeah. chemistry was really good. Like that really made it. So I think that really uh, carried it for me as well. They made it work and made uh, had me enjoy it. Um, this trope is not like my favorite of the, of the tropes. Uh, but, um, yeah, they're definitely, uh, and then, so on the other side, we have electric Larry from dirty money, black light. This is one of those episodes that I think as a whole, isn't a great episode, but it has so many great things in it. So the this is the one where uh, Rocky goes on, get, wins a vacation to Hawaii, and then all this cash starts showing up at his house. Yeah. And it's this weird, like, laundering scheme to launder a bunch of money that was, I think, requisitioned by the FBI uh, for something. Yeah. There's a lot. I, I was looking at our notes on the episode, and there's, like, it has a bunch of plot and it's kind of overstuffed with plot. Um, How far back did we watch this one? This was a while back, wasn't it? It was our episode 39, which was September 2018. Okay. <laughs> We've been at this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, and also directed by Stuart Marlin, which uh, oh, was yes. fun. Yeah. But Electric Larry is a loan shark and one of the many plots involves... <laughs> Angel owing Electric Larry money, I believe, and then that being the entree for Jim to try and use the loan shark as the linchpin for his plan to return the dirty money because this money has been marked, right? And can be seen under a black light. Um, so to return the dirty money to the FBI, I think. Yeah, yeah. So like return the dirty money so that he and Rocky aren't implicated in whatever crime happened with this dirty money. So he's trying to use Electric Larry to like essentially to launder it. Um, yeah. And then Electric Larry is like, what's up with this guy? And sends goons to follow him. He ends up in a boxing ring. There's a lot going on. But uh, yeah, this this uh, this Lone Shark character was just so... So he's, I don't really know if he's as prominent a villain as some of the other ones we talked about. He's on here for his style. Yeah, he stood out for style. Like, uh, he's played by uh, Roger E. Mosley, or Mosley. He was in... Magnum PI. Um, yeah. was TC uh, for for P- Magnum PI fans. I still haven't watched enough of that to have easy <laughs> references. And he was all over TV in the seventies. And he's just like a very stylish black actor who can pull off both menace and kind of joie de vivre. Yeah, 
Yeah. And like his office was all like crazy 70s prints and he had the dartboard with like the little foam balls instead of darts and he had his goons. Yeah, and the Velcro things and he just, yeah, again kind of as a stand-in for these really memorable side characters, side goons, bad guys, heavies that pop Mm -hmm. up in in many episodes that maybe the episode isn't about them, but like right it's a lot of the rock traditionness of the show is these like super interesting memorable villain types so both villains in this particular pairing are sort of champions for their archetype yeah that's a little bit what's going on here which is an interesting way to frame it because on the one hand i would say that clementi is closer to getting my vote because he's a more central figure in his episode. Right. But Electric Larry typifies a more important kind of villain throughout the series. Oh, wait, I just dug us into a hole here, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Um, oh. <laughs> did that just make it more complicated? <laughs> it did. It did. It made it more complicated for me. Because, I, I mean, I was I was leading uh, Clementi as well. Um, but I think also because I think that, that for some reason, that episode is fresher in my brain uh, than the Electric Lyric one. But I, I do actually want someone to speak for all of those. That's kind of where I'm la- – like, I, same. I was, I was leading Clementi, but now that I'm thinking of, like, who will – who will be the voice of all of the interesting goons? Right. Um, Let's do it. We'll just go. We'll say Electric Larry as the as the standard yeah. bearer for that whole. Because I'm also thinking there's like the oh god I don't even remember what episode it is, but the uh, uh, the record producer who um, yeah has like his his squad from like Brooklyn or whatever that's come up with him and he ended up yeah. killing someone in a parking lot and they're all covering for him like there's that guy we have a couple of the mob guys that are represented more in our uh in an, in another category yeah uh, the the urban horticulturalist yes who I I will spoil did not make this list but it was close <laughs> so we'll we'll give as a as a more holistic villain set <laughs> yes. will advance electric larry in our standings all right and the last pairing here um <laughs> oh god okay so this last pairing is uh an uneven match <laughs> body you. count wise oh sure <laughs> uh we have dr herbert brinkman from the competitive edge this is the doctor that abducts uh and tries to one floor the cuckoo's nest jim uh which is kind of a horrific villain thing going on there uh, versus the mayor's committee from the mayor's committee from Deer Lake Falls. And uh, I love this matchup. This might be my favorite matchup just because they're so different. (laughs) Yeah. So Dr. Herbert Brinkman is legitimately horrifying. Yes. There is a certain comfortable distance I can have from the mob violence people because I don't have personal experience with that. I have, however, had a doctor. <laughs> I like, or I've, I've been to the dentist. Like you, like there's to me that the, what happens where he takes away the agency of Jim uh, and is doing this to other people and is drugging them and uh and it's essentially the people who are standing in the way of his i think his brother is the guy who's running the athletic club and they have yeah. this like uh secret society of high achievers where he's basically shooting them up with like uppers and 
keeping them, you know, to help them succeed or whatever. And then so Dr. Brinkman is the punishment side slash the disappearing black, black site. Oh, this person's in our way. We don't want any bodies turning up. So he's just going to get a, he's just going to get disappeared to this spot where he's going to be kept under this sedation and, and gaslit into thinking that he's crazy, uh, etc. I'm a horror fan, and I think that, like, most things can be nudged in a horror direction uh, with just a sufficient push. Mm -hmm. This thing just takes the tiniest bump. It is horrific what's happening in the episode, but, like, this could have been... Anyways, the point is <laughs> that this this villain is uh, especially creepy to me. That's yeah. just there's something about this that just really He's super amoral. Yeah. So now that I've sold that, I want to talk <laughs> about the mayor's committee because one of the things I love about the mayor's committee is also also comes from some of my favorite horror, which is we have a group of guys with a certain amount of power and privilege who, uh, because they're a group of them, that like none of them on their own would be doing this thing that they're doing, but because they're all together, they they enable each other to yeah. do to be the worst that they could be. Mm-hmm. I love that trope too. That's that is I love watching fiction that examines that. In the episode, there uh, the the mayor is trying to kill. I can't. She's related to him in some yeah, way. Yeah, she's because... the niece. I don't remember if he's the mayor or if they're you know they're all prominent Deerlick Falls businessmen or whatever. But yeah, yeah the, there's the main guy, the one who's really the motive force, and his niece. Basically, uh, they've all been in on the uh, on a tax fraud scheme, yeah. and his niece found out and reported them or said she was going to report them to the IRS and then didn't or something. But then she left, she fled. And so he feels so threatened and he's convinced everyone else that they're so threatened by her that they've tracked her down to LA. They have this cover story of buying a fire engine to hire Jim. And then once they're like, he's a stand up guy, then they try to hire him to kill the niece. The fire engine bit is so great because like it starts, the episode starts with them riding the fire engine, like little children. How wonderful, how adorable. Well, and then they're having a big day out in the city, right? And they want to, like, find out where they can, like, find, like, prostitutes and, like, where they can... Celebrities. Yes, and, and celebrities and eat at the the the, uh, uh, the Brown, Brown Derby. Derby and like all the, <laughs> let's do all the famous LA things. So they're like hayseeds, but then they're like, oh, also we want to murder this girl because she might yes. cost us some money. <laughs> it, it does this great thing of taking what could have been just like one person doing it, breaking them up into, I can't remember how many are in the I committee. I think there's four, if I remember right. Each of them has their own uh, motivation. Some of them more strongly connected and they switch as it goes along. So you can see this turmoil, which is not, which you could have written as a inner turmoil, but instead they pulled it out and they had these characters doing it. And I think that's this like, uh, it's, it's a wonderful trick. It, it just works well. Cause like you, there's that one guy who is just so naive, mm-hmm. uh, like he's so wide-eyed with wonder, like he thinks he sees celebrities every time somebody walks by, uh, but still he's involved in this horrible plot that they're trying to rope Jim into. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a tough choice. Okay, so for me, if you if you have a clear go, I will go with whatever you have to <laughs> <Okay>. say here. <laughs> 
I'm not going to argue against anything here, but... uh... So I think, for me, Dr. Brinkman is more evil. He is a worse person. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And more capable. And more capable. The mayor's committee is more interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. As we discussed in the episode, and as you were just summarizing, the fact that, that they can embody different aspects of this villainous behavior in different characters makes the episode really interesting. And there's a really interesting scene that's just them where they're deciding whether they're going to go through with it or not, where you see the weight of authority shift from the one who's kind of dragging, kind of holding back and being like, maybe we shouldn't do this. And then we see him lose his authority to the one who's like, no, we have to do this. It's a really great scene. I also feel like the mayor's committee is more Rockford-y. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, while Dr. Brinkman is essentially a take on an existing character in some ways. So I'm leaning towards Mayor's Committee, is what I'm saying. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. I was only slightly leaning towards them, but if you're leaning towards them, yeah, let's do it. So there we go. We've got Gary Bevins, DA from So Help Me God, Dave Delarue from Portrait of Elizabeth, Electric Larry from Dirty Money Black Light, and the Mayor's Committee from the Mayor's Committee from Deer Lake Falls. That's uh, quite the rogues gallery. (laughs) It is. (laughs) All right. So that is our region three all sorted. Happy. I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the Worldwide Wrestling, Pro Wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com. And of course, you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta. Looks like you're back. You you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there, Epi? I'm back. I have my DM42 with me, and I'm ready to get in, dig down into Rockford's books again. Mm. All right. Well, I'm done with this delicious avocado taco. Well, let's get back to the show then. So that means that we are ready to go to Region 4, one of our more difficult set of determinations, I think. I oh, think yeah. this took a lot of our, <laughs> this took a lot of our, our bandwidth to uh, figure out these brackets, but I think... It'll be a good time to go through them. Region 4, Marks and Gaffs. Best con in one side versus best dialogue on the other. Before we get into the pairings, we ended up talking about what counts as a con. Oh, yeah. They're all um, episode-based, so we're kind of saying the con from this episode. Some of them are the con that frames the episode, and some of them are a specific con that happens inside the episode. There's kind of a spectrum of the scale of the con. One of our early uh, decisions we, or one of the decisions we had to make is uh, when we created the category of best gym fast talk, mm-hmm. that could have bled into this. So the cons here are are elaborate, plotted out games. They're not like thinking on the feet 
right. moment to, you know, these are, this is a thing that was planned and then executed however well or poorly they were executed. Right. These are specific con games where there's kind of a, where there's a mark and there's some kind of subterfuge to achieve whatever the goal is. All right. So the first pairing we have is the necklace swap in Counter Gambit versus uh, the insurance fraud con in the big ripoff. Mm-hmm. Now, the necklace swap, there are two necklace swaps in that episode. Yeah, this is a kind of a con counter con situation where there's yeah. there's a, a very valuable pearl necklace that is the subject of the whole episode and it's been stolen. The thing about talking about the cons is I want to make sure I'm getting it right. <laughs> yeah. I have to review the tape, but basically there's a necklace, <laughs> there's the real necklace, and then there's a fake necklace that's made to swap yeah. with it. And there's a con of trying to pin the theft on Jim. That's the original con. And then there's a counter con of getting the uh, original thieves to end up with the fake necklace so that the real necklace can go back to the owner and Jim is no longer being accused of the theft. And I think the con counter con thing is going to show up in several of these. And I think it's fine to, to mix them. So I want to just preface all of this by saying we will get these cons wrong. (laughs) The nature of them is that they're, they're full of fun details that are a little hard to follow. Yeah. So yeah, we didn't review all of these immediately before recording. So, um, so this one, like this, this has some very, Delightful moments. I love a con that involves Angel uh, and bringing Angel in as the expert to to examine the goods. Right. was just wondrous because I guess the thing I love about putting Angel in a con is that it's not – he's good in them, but you're just waiting for him to change his mind about what he wants out of the con. Right. And this one does that well. Right. Because this one actually plays on that aspect of the character yeah. of Angel. So, I mean, it works in context of just watching the episode, but for longtime viewers, I think we talked about it in our episode, when there's a moment where the original thieves show up at Angel's door and are like, okay, we know you weren't the. Yes. You're not the real fence. He's like, okay, I'm sorry. It was it was Jim Rockford. And we're like, of course, Angel <laughs> is going to give him up immediately. But then it turns out that's an element in the con, or in the counter con, rather, to, yeah. to get the thieves to go talk to the real expert, who is now in on Jim's con, uh, to tell them that they have the fake one when they really have the real one. And then they go back to switch them. So they switch their real one for the fake one, et cetera. So, so the fact that Angel is a weasel is used (laughs) to help fool the audience into thinking that the con is going one way when in reality it's going in Jim's favor. Oh, you've convinced me. I'm voting for the counter gambit. (laughs) So in the big ripoff, so this is the one that that starts off with the wonderful uh, dialogue-less intro where Jim flies to France, wends his way into talking to this very attractive young woman, and then later we find out that he's he was trying to establish whether she is the uh, wife of this guy who's disappeared. They claimed his life insurance, but now this woman is living on this fixed income that doesn't seem to have come from anywhere, and this whole thing is an yeah. elaborate cover so that, or she can also go and join the guy who died, who, quote, mm-hmm. died, and they can live <laughs> off of his life insurance that he's fraudulently claimed for his fraudulent death, right? Yes. And I, I think the inclusion of this con, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the inclusion of this con is for 
it's Rockfordishness. It's an insurance scam. Uh, there's a bit going on with the art world, which I don't think is part of the con, uh, but is part of how Jim uncovers him, right? Like, yes. Uh, he's an outsider artist or something. And, a primitive uh, artist, if you will. And the whole thing is that he would just give it up, except that he has this, the, the potential payoff. Like, I think this is one where yeah. he negotiates his the rate with the insurance company. Uh, yeah whatever the recovery fee will be. And it's like enough to keep him interested basically. Mm -hmm. So the con itself happens off screen because it's the insurance fraud. And then Jim has to kind of figure out the real story, which is just that it's all been that, that he faked his own death. Um, and then figure out a way to get some money out of it for himself because he ends up tied up in a cabin while they escape. (laughs) But then he gets this shipment of original art pieces that are worth, thousands of dollars on the open market that moment the the art pieces was in the running in my head uh i don't think i brought it to the table for rock traditionist mm-hmm. but that was definitely one of the ones that i was thinking about like does this ending qualify as 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 rock traditionist and it's, it comes very close except it does the exact opposite of what right it ends up actually being worth it for him <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i wanted to have it on here just because Kind of to recognize that episode. Um, yeah. Because it has a really cool... There's a little bunch of cool stuff about it, especially the the cinematography in the beginning. But mm-hmm. when you get right down to it in the best con category, I mean, Counter Gambit is one of the most specific yeah. cons and it's really well done. Um, so I feel like you won't push back on giving this no, one to Counter Gambit. Counter Gambit, uh, it is. Yeah, I, I, I think that this one is also a nice nod to a style of con that Jim has to unravel that isn't one that he's tied up in. Yeah, he's not the target. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But sometimes Jim is the target. So in the next pairing, we have the Aaron Ironwood School of Success, uh, which is Aaron's con on Jim versus uh, A Blessing in Disguise, which I think is the first of only two showings from the movies. Yep. Uh, Angel as a televangelist. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, I don't know if we have to explain that second part at all, but let's go let's go deal with Aaron Ironwood and his school of success here. Aaron Ironwood is Jim's adopted brother. Yeah, a, a friend from way back when he was a kid that is, is he literally adopted as a brother or just like thought so oh oh, okay yeah they they grew up together and then aaron went off his way and jim went off his way and aaron ironwood is this uh uh is a motivational speaker essentially and so he's built this whole (laughs) pyramid scheme empire on very very uh dare i say trumpian yes people paying lots of money to go to these um to go to these events where he tells them that all they have to do is 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 use their power of positivity and they'll get everything that they're owed in life. It's kind of a, a bit of a prosperity gospel kind of thing. One of the, the selling points for me in this one is uh, how entangled Jim and Rocky are in mm-hmm. this one. Uh, Rocky loves Aaron uh, and throughout the episode, at least in the beginning, can't doesn't think Aaron could do any wrong. I think, sorry to, to correct myself. The synopsis describes him as a childhood friend. Well, this one says Rockford welcomes home his childhood foster brother. I really think they're foster brothers. Either either way, it's this family entanglement that's great. Uh, Jim, if I remember correctly, is suspicious at the beginning, but gives him the benefit of the doubt. And then we see these pieces of like, how does this money fit together? How do, like, 
what you know jim's like why doesn't this add up you know why is that money tied up there or what you know like none of this makes sense as it's going along he has a cover story for that which is like yeah. really kind of the con part yes he has a whole story that he lets Jim drag out of him as the reason for why it's weird. Yeah. But that itself is a cover for he's a scam artist and he's trying to get out of his business before it all falls apart. Look, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm getting out. You don't understand. That's right. I don't understand. Now, I don't know what you're trying to pull, but you run me up some story about a bunch of old oil buddies. You give me the company and then throw me at the mafia. You must have known I was going to sell it. I didn't Only a dummy wouldn't sell to the... I didn't figure you'd turn chicken. Why not? You did. Give me my check. Hmm? I want my check. What check? You don't give me that check. I'm going to cause you a heap of pain. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make you the same deal you made me on my catcher's mitt. I'll split it with you. You're out of it now. I won't. I get the dollars. strange feeling that I'm not out of it, Aaron. <laughs> this whole episode just does a... I mean, I remember loving this episode. It does a great job of, like, pulling that out. And one of the great con bits of it is that he can't interact with Aaron the same way he does with Angel. With Aaron, he has to take a different tact. There's this sense that he owes Aaron. Yes, for whatever reason. And they kind of imply why and kind of their childhood. But yeah, um, there's a couple points where it's like, Jim, would you really fall for this? Right. <laughs> but I think when we watched it, we kind of forgave it that because it felt like Jim was kind of fooling himself because he wanted to think the best of Aaron. Right. And so that was like a character beat that made it kind of make sense for us. All right. So from to the totally other side of the spectrum um time wise and character wise in yes. a blessing in disguise uh one of the 90s movies the whole plot of angel becoming a televangelist in a way that is clearly a con but he does so yes. much to make it sound like he's really changed. But Jim at no point actually believes that he's changed, right? Yes. So there's this whole uh, thing. We find out eventually that he was kind of brought into this uh, televangelist's inner circle because he pretended to speak in tongues. Yes. And so he, he kind of got mentored by this guy who ended up dying, had like a heart attack or something. And so Angel was ready to just step into his spot. Um and take over the church. And now he's kind of enriching himself at the expense of, of the congregants, but also he's stirring up controversy by going after a, like, uh, a blasphemous movie. Um, right. Specifically in order to get more media attention for his church. Uh, so one of the appeals of this is to see Angel just absolutely in his element. Mm -hmm. It's great that this is one of the 90s movies because you can feel <laughs> just, just the distance where you're waiting for this moment to happen. Like you just by the 90s, you're like, you know who would make a great televangelist? <laughs> Angel. Angel Martin. Yeah, older Angel Martin with his curly hair and, and oh. his gray beard. Fundamentally, there's nothing terribly complex about this con at all. It's just a, it's only a con in the sense that Angel has ulterior motives and the ability to lie to enough people just enough to get what he wants to happen. But like, yeah, his bodyguards, his like guardian angels or whoever, who yes. are clearly just <laughs> ex mobsters that he's just paying. And when the money starts drying up, they're going to turn on him. Yeah. He's not fooling them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about it, which I don't think 
is necessarily indicative that this is going to lose this pairing at all, uh, other than to just say that this is just a delight to watch. Yeah, I this one's a little hard. Um, so Aaron has more of a con game mm-hmm. where Jim's the mark, while Angel is more just running a con, yeah. just juicing as much as he can out of a situation. Um, you only get to watch one of these. I would probably choose to watch... Um, Aaron Ironwood? No, I, I think I'd probably choose to watch Blessing in Disguise again. Oh, yeah. Just because watching Angel yeah. is so much fun. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, I would go with that. It's really it's a tough call for me. I do think I do lean more towards Aaron Ironwood. Here's another thing. Is Angel represented in other cons? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's well represented throughout. So maybe just to kind of mix it up, sure, we'll give it to Aaron Ironwood. Because again, as I think about it, it is more of a traditional con, yeah. As well, we okay with that? I'm good with that. Yeah, Aaron Ironwood, it is. Oh, this next one. So this next pairing, uh, there's one in every port, and my note on it is the whole con. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whole episode is well, it's layers of cons versus. Chicken Little is a little chicken, and uh, this is the con at the end where they have to fake Angel's death. So let me start with the second half of that. Okay. Let me start with the Chicken Little is a little chicken. It's already won the best episode for us. So, uh, <laughs> like, it doesn't have to sweep, but also we shouldn't discount it here. Sure. Okay, it's a complex con at the end. Uh, it takes up less of the episode than some of the other ones in this category. But there's two bits to it that I think really stand out. And the first is in Beth's apartment, Jim's explaining to Angel how it's going to go down and... Uh, using like salt and pepper shakers and Angel, uh, who we know is a consummate con man, is asking Jim to repeat himself <laughs> over and over again and just can't see how it's going to work. And we think, well, of course it's going to work. Out of the two of them, Jim's the smarter one. <laughs> and it doesn't. Yeah. It's so wonderful to just see that. Because Jim is so proud of this con. He's so proud of the, what he's come up with here. It's just a shell game. It's just a classic shell game. Yeah. <laughs> And then the the second part is the filming of the shell game and just seeing uh, everyone having these different reactions to what's going on <laughs> and just being like, well, for me, I think my experience probably was thinking, well, of course it's going to work. Jim knows better than Angel. And then as it's going down and seeing people reacting the way they are, thinking this isn't going to work. Yeah, <laughs> like the, this is this is falling apart. Yeah, yeah. I actually did a uh, back on our Patreon. You can see I posted a diagram where I tried to actually track yes. what was happening and came to the conclusion <laughs> that they did not physically film it in a way that shows you that it could succeed. Uh, yes. There's too many question marks and what they don't show you. Therefore, you know, it's just for the effect, right? Of of, of getting you to where you're like, oh no, this isn't going to work, which is great, which is very effective. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a swindle, and it yeah. needs all these moving parts, right? It needs Rocky to do a handoff it needs everyone involved in the chain of there's three suitcases and there's two different payloads and an empty suitcase and they all have to end up with the right three people and so everyone involved needs to kind of do what jim expects them to do it needs angel's brother-in-law to print his obituary Mm -hmm. which is another like whole deal and then and then there's the whole like uh, uh eulogy being given in the background which is a delight Oh, yes. <laughs> no, it is a wonderful scene. That said, All right. it is up against uh, One in Every Port, which is basically the Sting, the Rockford Files episode. Yes. 
<laughs> Jim gets conned by an old girlfriend who's making a plea for money for her dad's uh, dialysis or kidney transplant or something. And from the get-go, this is an old girlfriend who is Jim knows as a con artist, right. whose dad he knows is a con artist, right? So this is Jim's a difficult mark, but they're going to do it. He he, I forget exactly what the hook is, but he basically ends up owing a bunch of money. That's the thing. I don't. So again, I don't remember the exact details. There's a rock traditionist of the con. Yes, there's uh, a thing about the ship actually being two ships right it's under it's it, it's flying under multiple flags so it kind of like exists in two places at once yeah and that is something that they create to give the illusion to the other con artists that they might want to be offloading this ship again it's been a while and like we said we're going to get these wrong but one of the the things about it that I remember enjoying was the level at which they kept uh, enticing. So Mm -hmm. this fact that the two ships under the same name are in different ports uh, makes them illegal isn't true, but it was created to create the illusion that they might need to move them fast, which is why they might be conning them into buying them. So there was like all these different layers of uh, like, well, the con artists are, are they're going to see through this layer. So we're going to put this layer here. So yeah, the it's so Jim is playing in a high six poker game to raise the money and the poker game gets hit and they steal yeah. all the money. And that was the con was to like get Jim into this poker game so that they knew where to go, I guess. And then uh, the, the mobster that he's playing with, who I, uh, I'll remind you, his name is Blast Gillette, is coming after Jim for all that money because he's like, oh, you worked your way into our high stakes game. You must have been the point person. And he's like, no, 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 I'll get you your money back. So he sets up the elaborate ship-related re- scheme because uh, Eddie is involved with the shipping company or something. Like, he's he's also running a con on them. Yeah. They're running some con on this shipping company, and then Jim comes in, and he fakes his whole identity as this high-rolling uh, tycoon who wants to buy this ship that flies under the multiple flags, uh, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's great business about who can see who at what time. Yeah, who knows who's conning who. It would be very difficult for me at this moment to piece it all out, but just the way it all fit together was kind of exquisite. Yeah, when you when we put it like that, while there is a wonderful kind of uh, a delight to seeing Jim's elaborate plan that he's so proud of fall apart, mm-hmm. in the best con category, I kind of have to give it to the elaborate revenge con that is yeah. also going to get Jim out of trouble. That the plan all comes together. And it takes a whole crew of con men, which is another great thing. Angel has to play a role and he actually plays his role. And yes. <laughs> and his role again involves, quote, selling out his boss. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the con. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, there even has to get con con men that, that they won't, the other con men won't recognize. Oh, it's great. Anyways, I'm with you. One in every port. Yeah. Chicken Little is a little chicken. That's fine. It's one of the best episodes. I'm not worried about that episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All right. The final pairing here. We're going to go way back in our own personal episodes here (laughs) with the Farnsworth stratagem. Uh, Okay, so the episode itself, it starts off with Dennis and Peggy being swept up in uh, a timeshare. Basically like a timeshare hotel thing. Yeah. And Dennis needs Jim's help getting out of it. So uh, Jim has 
we see the beginnings of uh, our Oklahoma oil man. Uh, Jimmy Joe Meeker ends up being the recurring character. And he has a different name. I yeah. mean, he's Farnsworth. He's someone Farnsworth in yeah. this episode. But it's the same character that Jim creates. Uh, and he needs to, he, he creates the illusion that there is oil on this property. The deal is there's oil on the property. He's going to make it so difficult. And he gets the mineral, he has the mineral rights. Right. So he can drill right in front of the hotel. And he's going to make it so difficult for them that they're going to offer to buy right. him out. To make him stop, and then they'll be able to buy out uh, uh, Dennis's contract, I think is kind of is basically the idea. And this one's up against the Italian bird fiasco, which uh, is an episode where another episode where Jim is okay, he's not the target of the con, but he's meant to be a hapless victim in the con. I thought this was an interesting inclusion because there's a the frame for the entire plot is a con that that's happened off stage. Yeah. That doesn't really get revealed until the very end. But then everyone in the episode is the subject of that con. And so thinking that what thinking that the certain set of the Italian bird statues are what they are. It turns out they're wrong, but it's what drives all of their things. And then inside that, there are little cons. There's the um, the guy uh, again, our our good friend uh, William Daniels. Uh, William Daniels, yeah, sets up this whole introduction to Jim to show off what a what a wonderful, powerful art dealer he is, and then strikes that set basically so that when Jim comes back, he can't find him. Um, and to make it see, and then as we talked about in that episode, like probably had the hotel manager working for him in order to yeah. gaslight Jim essentially into thinking that <laughs> something was wasn't real. Uh, and then there's the woman that he that's also looking for them who poses as this uh, uh, buyer for a museum, and it turns out that she's actually a jewel thief. Um, so there's like an identity fraud thing going on, unlike. Um, one in every port or counter gambit. It's not that there's one con that has counter cons within it. It's more like a Russian nesting doll of cons and they all <laughs> are directed at different ends, but they're all revolving around this one major con, which is these bird statues that may or may not be full of jewels. Yeah. So I guess my big divide here is that I, both, both episodes are so wrapped up in eat either one of their cons. And again, like the Farnsworth stratagem is definitely got cons within cons. Like there's the whole romance with the woman that's trying to con Jim in the beginning, right. who turns around and starts helping Jim out with his con. Uh, and it has wonderful Dennis angel, Rocky angel moments. Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do with my brain here is to separate the cons from their episodes. Sure. Because if they're, if they are their episodes, I'm Farnsworth because it, it, it's just a, a, a really fun episode for me. I guess one of the things I really like about the Farnsworth is how Jim just abandons his con when the mob shows up, right? Um, so I, I guess for that alone, like I'm leaning Farnsworth, but uh, I could be convinced otherwise. How are you? Yeah, I mean, the, so the thing for the time bird fiasco is that the cons are all kind of the main con it's kind of beside the point it's just the it's just the yeah. plot um because it turns out that the original birds were there all along and that is what has driven yeah. all this weirdness happening 
The smaller cons are fun within it. The, the smaller cons are fun within it, but Jim kind of like figures each one out in turn, right? Um, yeah. There's no counterplay. Um, so that all said, if a category is best con singular, I don't know. There's something, it's just, there's there's something so uh, Rockford-y about Farnsworth. It's just. Yeah. So we have at the end of this uh, counter gambit. Uh, the necklace swap goes forward. Uh, the Aaron Ironwood School of Success uh, goes forward. There's one in every port goes forward, and the Farnsworth stratagem goes. So these are yeah, hard category. All solid. It's a solid category. Yeah. All right. Okay, let's bring it home. All right. So this is the best dialogue category. Yes. This one is also kind of on a spectrum where we have some that are specific chunks of dialogue, and we have some that are kind of like. A scene that we remember that encapsulates yeah. dialogue that we remember being really great. And uh, also some of this is a line and some of it is back and forth dialogue. So this is a bit of a catch-all category for like <laughs> stuff we really like that's based on the actual words that people said. Yes. <laughs> Monologue, soliloquy, dialogue, whatever whatever it is, somebody said it and uh, we we thought that thought it was good. So our first pairing here, we'll have the, the second appearance of one of the movies from If the Frame Fits. And this mm-hmm. is, we talked about it at the time. I think it will stay with us forever, which is just the moment where oh uh, all this stuff has gone down. Jim is helping someone who's been framed, basically, right? Yes. They're at the police station. Dennis is at the end of his rope for whatever reason. And he turns to Jim. You know that bees can die of loneliness? Well, they can. <laughs> I don't know what could be said about this other than it, it, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, like it just it, it just comes out of nowhere. It just carries so much weight with it. The fact that it comes from Dennis, the fact that it comes in that moment, it, the fact that it doesn't have anything to do with anything. <laughs> it just it, it, it imbues it with a meaning that is so. It's a it's a Cohen. Sorrowful. It's like, what does that even mean? Like, bees die of loneliness. And then it's like, I'm going to think about that for a while. Yeah, it's just delightful um, and weird. And we just are going to remember it forever. So I think that's why it's on our on our bracket. Uh, we're pairing this with another Dennis bit. And this is more dialogue. But this is uh, also from Italian Bird Fiasco, which we were uh, just talking about. Uh, so part of the, that plot also revolves around the murder of a uh, Lloyd's of London insurance agent. And mm-hmm. so there's a moment where the L.A. cops have been asked to help figure out what's going on. And Dennis is talking to Jim. Jim has called him from a payphone. Uh, he wants uh, and Dennis wants to talk to Jim about this murder. Hey, Dennis, old buddy. How's it going? Jim, where are you, buddy? Oh, I'm uh, in a phone booth. Yeah, whereabouts? It's uh, under a tree. Jim, you better come in. Did you send those blue suits out to my place? Yeah. Why? Jim, you come on down. We'll talk it over and we'll get the whole thing worked out. Well, I'd like to do that, Dennis, old buddy, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to stay away from the department. (laughs) You know, I hurt your reputation when I come in there. Jim, you get your butt in here, I'm going to put out a warrant on you. What's the matter, Dennis? Can't you ask nice? You got to send one of those Batmobiles to pick me up? That was Highland's idea. What's going on? Dennis, 
If you don't tell me, I'm not coming in. <sighs> All right, I'll give you this much. We got to follow up on that telex. They found that Lloyd's of London agent that was missing. Uh, Barrows? Right. He's dead. There's more, but you got to come in if you want the answers. Yeah, okay, Dennis, I'm on my way. Put out a warrant on Rockford. He said he was coming in. He's not coming in. How do you know? Because I know, that's all. <laughs> so this, again, kind of stands in for this whole genre of banter. Yeah. Where something is happening, the cops want to talk to Jim. <laughs> Jim knows that if he goes to the police station, that's going to be the end of it for him. Um, and so they have whatever he needs to have with Dennis to give him plausible deniability about mm-hmm. whether he's going to see Jim or not. So the, the, this clear tension in their relationship, like Jim needs Dennis to get things, get information. Uh, that's generally a one-way thing. I'm, I'm assuming Jim is otherwise a good friend to Dennis. <laughs> that is the impression we get. Jim, Jim's willing to run an entire very expensive con to yes, get them yes. out of their bad uh, timeshare <laughs> yeah. situation. So, I think it's it's not just the button in that dialogue. It is the Jim and Dennis going back and forth with their fake voices with <laughs> each other. It's just good. It's just good, good, good. All right. So where do you where do you come down on this? Because we kind of have one exquisite line that needs yes. no context versus this whole kind of typology of conversation that is like core to the Jim Dennis relationship. Yeah, it's so hard. Me being who I am, I gotta go with the bees die of loneliness. I can't like, I can't let go of that. Like, I'm already picking out fonts for the tattoo. <laughs> I feel like you feel stronger about that than I feel advocating okay. for the other one. So we'll go with uh, we'll, we'll advance bees die of loneliness to the next round. <laughs> I just want to see where what shore that one washes up on. <laughs> So the next pairing we have here uh, are two sort of complete scenes. Mm-hmm. They're both wonderful moments that I think you don't need any background to enjoy. Like I could show these scenes to non-Rockford Pile fans <laughs> and they would just absolutely enjoy them. Uh, the first one is our urban horticulturalist. The reason why the urban horticulturalist did not make the the best villain list is because the scene was going to make the best dialogue list. And uh, that's what we want the urban horticulturist for is the scene. Uh, there's a lot going on in the scene. There's great status play going on. There's good uh, angel trying to uh, weasel out of things. Right. I am what is known as an urban horticulturist. See, I have this garden scene that runs from 4th to the freeway and from Manchester right up to the ocean. Now, this garden was given me to watch over by Lucas Spoda while he's out of the country cooling off. But before he leaves, he says to me, Chester, don't you never let nobody plant nothing in your garden without you getting something to what grows. Now, you may ask, how come Chester Sierra gets to look over this garden and not some other guy? And this is a fair question. It is because I am a good gardener. And what I plant grows. And I'm picking up lots of fruit. And Lucas Sport is happy. Now, along come a couple of guys. They jump over the fence with a gunny stack. They start messing around in my garden. I ask them what they're doing. They tell me I'm not in the picture. Well, let me give you a piece of news. You are going to be out of the picture. 
We got a special place in the garden for guys what don't cooperate. It's called the East L.A. River, and nothing grows there but stiffs. You remember Tom Little? I took the money back to this guy's apartment, and there were two guys there. And I ran for it, and they chased me, but I got away. And what happened to the 30 grand? You want to tell him that part, Jimmy? No, no, you go right ahead. Sounds so flaky, I'm beginning to believe in myself. They ditched Rockford's car. I don't know where the car is, but the money's there. You want me to believe this? Well, I know that... I've been very patient with you guys. Hmm. I brought you over here. I invite you to dinner so we can sit down and discuss everything. And instead of a little honor and decency, you feed me an ice cream sandwich! Drop these guys in the river and make an example. I don't want no one else to think they can screw with me. You did it, Jimmy. I did it. I never said a word. And after you finish with them, I want to see Tom right here, right now. Look, why kill us both? Look, just kill one of us. That would be even better, see? You could do Jimmy now, and then I go around and I tell people, well, you don't cheat Chester Sierra, and then later on, if you want to scare more people, why I'd be available for the engagement. Get him out of here. Right. It's got great menace. It's got great uh, weaseliness. It's got Jim being defiant, but also like understanding the situation. It's, it's got all of that. And then on top of it, I think this is maybe our best example here of the category of uh, Rockford Files jargon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's plenty we could be like, uh, I'm about to climb your tree or, you know, like lines like that from throughout all the episodes. They sell me an ice cream sandwich is just an example of that that wonderful uh that 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 way of turning a phrase that is like I'm not sure yeah. if anyone in real life would say this, but I believe that this person in this show says it. Yes, exactly. This is a very rich uh entry. <laughs> right. Similarly. <laughs> yes. So what it what it's up against is when Gabby and Gandy walk into the bar. <laughs> Gabby and Gandy walk into a bar. And it turns out that it's a Nazi bar. You were going to do the talking? Good evening. I'm Marcus Aurelius Hayes, and I'd like to have a martini. Very dry. This is a nice place you have here. You know the nice thing about this country? That people from all political walks of life can coexist. Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Socialists, Nazis. Communists. As you were, we'll only be a minute. We don't allow no coconuts in here. Why don't you just get your butts out now? <laughs> well, I uh, think I should tell you that my name is Marcus Hayes from the Alcoholic Beverage Control Center. We license bars, in case you didn't realize it. So despite the fact that you might have certain ethnic beliefs with which I'm not uh, totally in sympathy, but although I certainly respect your right to have, I'm going to still put you out of business, so be nice. Uh, well, if uh, now isn't convenient, perhaps later... Or I could send my supervisor out, Ernst Kruger. You through talking? It's a cold house, man. Gabby does his best to talk the situation down. 
um, and ultimately does not succeed. Therefore, yes. we get to see Gandhi and Gabby uh, wipe the floor with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of Nazis, which is extremely satisfying. Yeah, yeah, this is like one of the most satisfying scenes in all of television. It's just wonderful. So it's a hell of a pairing. It, oh God, this one is so hard. Partly because going into this. The urban horticulturist was just like a uh, uh, just a go-to example that we kept using when we were talking about yeah. doing uh, the the this particular scene. But also, I like I said, the Gabby Gabby versus the Nazis is just so classic, so good, it's so satisfying. Yeah. So I guess where hmm. <laughs> where I'm coming. So I have two countervailing feelings here. One is yeah. Chicken Little is a little chicken is is. Well represented in the best episode <laughs> category. <laughs> and that's kind of inclusive of all of these elements that are standout elements. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, the this chunk of dialogue is so Rockford-y. Yeah. While the Gabby and Gandy uh, dialogue is extremely character. Like, for those characters, that scene is excellent. But mm-hmm. that is a backdoor pilot for a different show. Yeah. And it's a great set piece scene that could be in any episode. The the plot is just we need to go to this bar to find someone, like like to find out if they know who this yeah. person is, and that could be in so many different episodes. While uh, the uh, the the urban horticulturalist, like the fact that he's who he is and he has a relationship he does to the other mobster in that episode, is core to how that episode works. Yeah. Even though it's a wonderful scene, I kind of feel like, given our project here, I actually am leaning more towards the uh, giving him an ice cream sandwich. Oh but I'm willing, I'm willing to entertain argument. I am so on the line with this that, like, it's different from being on the line and going, okay, you made a decision, so let's just go with that one. This is like the, <laughs> I'm so on the line that I, I, I still can't just commit to either one of them. Um, I, I'm going to go with what you say. Because there's no reason to just quibble about this if I can't raise I like I, I will say that the Gabby and Gandy against the Nazis is just it's great. I, I think I do agree with you though. It is had we had a larger Rockford cinematic universe <laughs> uh to enjoy, and then this was about all of the Rockford cinematic universe, then uh I would not be able to make a decision here. But I think you've convinced me with this uh it's just so iconic. Yeah, the the ice cream sandwich is so iconic. At least for us. Yeah. Oh my god, I can't believe we're still having trouble right down to the end here. All right, and this next bit we're going to pit Angel against Angel. <laughs> And they're both Angel talking to Rockford. Yeah. Um, so uh, our first entry here is from Hotel of Fear, where mm-hmm. uh, Angel is in some deep trouble and uh, going to Rockford, but then unwilling to listen to what Jim is trying to tell him. And then our other one is, again, from Chicken Little is a Little Chicken, um, <laughs> but is a specific the specific line where Jim runs down all of the things that Angel has done to get him into trouble and asks, why should I help you? Jimmy, please, come on. I can't do this alone. I'll be in white satin by sundown. You gotta help me. Why? Because, because you put 30 grand in my car without telling me and dragged two underworld syndicates down on top of me because you forgot a half a dozen little details, any one of which could have gotten me killed and because you're crazy enough to confide in Tom Little. Did I forget anything? Yeah, you forgot something. Why? Because you're my friend. One of the the brilliant things about this piece of dialogue uh, is how the two act. 
right? <laughs> like, I, I feel like that's a really fundamental thing to say. But, okay, here's the advantage that the Chicken Little has a little chicken dialogue has, and that is somebody has gone through the trouble to gifize it, to giffinate it. To, <laughs> it is on Twitter, if you, if you search up a gif of the Rockford Files, each moment in this bit of dialogue shows up in an animated subtitled gif. And so... I have over the years watched Rockford at the very end of that line. I've, I've watched his, his, his defenses crumble at the <laughs> end of, but because you're my friend over and over and over again. And it's, it's wonderful. It's yeah. Uh, not to make that the only, uh, way to judge any of these categories because. There are woefully few Rockford gifts out there. I think this is this is something that that comes up a couple times, right? Like Angel, why should I help you? Um, I don't yeah. know if it's delivered this exact same way, but like this is a type. Yeah. At the end of the day, like we're friends. Like that's why yeah. we're in this together. Um, so the other line, this is from Hotel of Fear near the beginning. So uh, Angel witnesses a uh, hitman uh, murder uh, a woman a woman that he knows at the mm-hmm. like CD hotel that he lives at. And so of course, what is his first thing? He runs to Rockford um, for help. <laughs> Jim is trying to give him the very straightforward, sober advice, normal stuff that normal people do. Like you should call the police. Yes. <laughs> Angel uh, uh, doesn't want to do that and keeps trying to, he keeps on asking for help and then immediately pushing back on the help that Jim is trying to give him. Yes. And then he ends up, in this spiral. I was an innocent bystander, and you know what happens to them. Innocent bystander gets caught in a crossfire. Innocent bystander gets hit by a semi in a wild chase. Yeah, but you're a witness. The cops don't want to talk to you. Muriel is dead. D on the ED. Now, what am I going to do? Bring her back to life? Who am I? Am I God? <laughs> I, a delightful thing about this is that this is this is Angel's internal monologue, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> there's no there's no barrier here. In this one, he's just telling us what he's thinking as he's thinking it in his frantic state of mind. I made this pick, and uh, one one thing that really elevated it for me was just this this way that it encapsulate. Not only is it a demonstration of Angel's monologue, it also encapsulates the Angel character in his whole like I want help, I need help, but not the way you're trying to help me. Yeah. <laughs> I need help, but only in ways that I can conceptualize avoiding any kind of danger. Yeah, I need help, but no consequences. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to talk to the police. Yeah. <laughs> and then blowing this, you know, making this dramatic overreach to some explanation for why he shouldn't do the very obvious thing that essentially is in his own best interest. It's a very childlike argument. Mm-hmm. And it's also dialogue that, like, who else could deliver this stuff like this? Like, Stuart Margolin, yes. <laughs> he just inhabits this character so well. And who else can say these words in this way and have it be this entertaining? And the answer is no one. That's who. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking, like, this is a great way to reveal some of the character of Angel. But, I like, the thing is, Stuart Margolin just reveals the character of Angel all the time mm-hmm. so well. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's a tough one. My, my leaning is towards the, because you're my friend, we've done this thing where if it's one in one category, we've been kind of leaning against it in other categories. Uh, and also I know that chicken little is a little chicken has been in so many categories, but again, I could be convinced otherwise here. I'm leaning the other way. 
I mean, kind of all along that track of kind of like, well, because I'm your friend is very core, but it's also that episode is represented in this category already. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. If part of what's so great about it is that it is expressing the Angel Jim relationship, uh, the dialogue from Hotel Fear is also doing that. Okay. In a slightly different way, but where this is actually Jim actually trying to help Angel. Like, this is this is Jim sure. actually being a friend. Like, right. you have come to me in a panic. I'm trying to help you. And Angel showing how he's just such a hard friend to have. Yeah. So the exasperation at the end of Because You're My Friend, mm-hmm. even though that this isn't the order that they, they aired in, I don't think, uh, but is informed greatly by what's <laughs> happening in Hotel of Fear here. Yeah. If, if this is a, a, an, an, an affront on your core beliefs about this line, because I'm your friend, I can respect that. But that's I, my honestly, argument. Honestly, I don't trust myself because I've just seen it in a in, in the GIF so often. <laughs> So, yeah, let's go with the Hotel of Fear. I think that's good. Who am I, God? And then, I think very appropriately, to end this all, the last pairing we have is Jim Rockford versus Jim Rockford. Yeah, so similar to, to those ones with Angel, we have one that's like a line and then one that's back and forth dialogue. They're both just revealing to the audience a fundamental bit about the character of Jim Rockford. So the line one here is from Profit and Loss. Um, I think from the first episode, I think it's from Profit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's part of the whole, I want to hire you. Well, I don't want to actually do any work dance. Um, yeah. You said it was dangerous. How dangerous? I'm not certain. Yeah, well, in all candor, if it's really dangerous, uh, I don't think I'd be particularly interested I don't understand. I was told that you were very reliable. Reliable, but chicken. Yes. (laughs) This reliable, but chicken, I feel like it belongs right there with, along with plus expenses, right? Like, (laughs) one of the fundamental features of Jim that I I love is his practicality. And uh, he he has a a healthy respect for violence. (laughs) He's a healthy... (laughs) Uh, desire to avoid being hurt. And, and, right. and this is, uh, great when this character, when he's positioned between these forces of like, when he has to go and face something and say, Rocky doesn't want him to, uh, or when Angel is like a further extension of that cowardice, like on a, on a, on a much grander scale. Uh, but I think for me, my favorite moments are when Jim tells people that are trying to hire him, this thing that you're doing is too dangerous. I don't want to be involved. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know who you think I am, but I'm a human being and I don't want to get hurt. And uh, I think that j- just three words, reliable but chicken, just nails it so well. That said. That said, yeah. Then this one was, uh, the other one was, uh, was one of my picks. And it's, this is from The Countess, which is one of our earliest episodes that we did. And this bit has just stayed with me the entire time, um, as this kind of mission statement for Jim Rockford's view of the world that I think Mm -hmm. is never really challenged. Not in the sense that it's simplistic, but more in the sense of like, this seems so intrinsic. Yeah. It's it's never doubted uh, throughout the rest of the, the show, really. And we kind of see him come back to it in his behavior over and over. It's at the very end of the episode. Uh, Jim's in the hospital. There's been a rough and tumble. I think 
uh, he and the the villain of the piece went over uh, a cliff in a car or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking to the uh, the countess uh, who originally hired him. Um, and she's had the wool pulled over her eyes by that bad guy. I forget exactly the details, but to try and get her money or something like that. Um, and so she's finally seeing the full truth of the matter, which is that he was lying to her uh, and all of the things she thought were real or not. They keep fooling you, don't they? I think everything's real. Then when you get close enough so you can see, it's just made of plastic. Mike was the only genuine article around. But he got hooked on a plastic countess. How do you deal with that? We're all scared to death. I guess that's a penalty we pay for living in a world where all the price tags end 99 cents and they sell mortuary plots on billboards next to the freeway. What you do is you just keep laughing. They're going to kiss your hand, honey, because you are a countess. Stop worrying about it. You're playing a big practical joke. Just just keep laughing. Is that what you do? (laughs) You bet. And that's the end of the episode. I think it freeze frames yes. like on his smile after, right after it. Um, first of all, there's the Rockfordishness of the uh, price tags end in ninety nine cents and mortuary plots on yeah, billboards the, the next to the freeway. Details, yeah, they're they're a bit of Rockford poetry. Yes, but then this idea of we're all playing a role. Everyone is faking it. Uh, you can either let that get to you. Or you can be part of the joke. Or you can be in on it. Yeah. Uh, we recently saw this reinforced in To Protect and Serve, where he has a similar exchange with the woman that he ends up trying to help uh, in that two-parter, where she, too, is having an entire life fall apart and all of a sudden has to figure out what to do next. And he's his advice to her is essentially like, you were playing a role in New York, yeah. and now it's over. That doesn't mean that you've changed. Right. Like you're still you. You still get to make choices. Uh, So it's kind of like the other side of this where it's like just because you are putting on a mask sometimes doesn't mean you're a different person underneath. Just kind of like the yin to this yang a little bit. Um, Yeah. It's just, again, one of those things that's just stuck with me and just seems so core to the gym outlook on the world. I I offer no resistance on that. (laughs) Well, I was just presenting it. Do you? Well, I guess that's my pick then. Okay. (laughs) I, I like I like both of them quite a bit. Uh, I think they both say something uh, fundamental about the character of Jim. But I think I like the other one, the Countess one, better because of I guess it goes a little deeper. And it just it again it I think you're right on track with the the sort of poetry, the, the specific brand of poetry, <laughs> the ninety nine cents, the the mortuary plots uh it's all very rockford uh yeah i think it's it, you know uh we may have even said something to the effect but it's got the all the world's a stage and we're merely players it has a bit of, it's a bit of a riff on some very classic yeah. phrasing yeah so uh yeah this is the shakespearean rockford here. <laughs> all right well then we'll advance it to the next round Yes. All right. So our final selections for best dialogue are the uh, uh, we'll shorthand them as uh, "Who Am I, God?" from Hotel of Fear, <laughs> "Bees Die of Loneliness" uh, from If the Frame Fits, 
the price tags and practical jokes monologue from the Countess. And you give me an ice cream sandwich. Chicken Little <laughs> is a little chicken. All right. There we go. That's our first round done. <laughs> 32 Rockford things have been eliminated. <laughs> I feel dirty. <laughs> um, uh, that, so that's, that's us for this episode. Yes. Next time, we're going to go all the way. We won't have to recap them. No. If you only listen to that episode, uh, I mean, don't. <laughs> like at least listen to this one before it. If you listen to that episode, then you come and listen to this episode. Then you get to this part where we say you really should listen to this one first. Well, now you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we'll do our we'll we'll cut in some clips and stuff to keep things fresh as we go. But uh, also, it'll go a lot faster because there's fewer fewer choices to make. Though perhaps some of them will be more agonizing. And then we'll also get to the part where we'll be crowning our region champions. And that will yeah. be ridiculous because what's better, the best car chase or the best villain? We're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should both plan on being ready to go to bat for things this next one. Because this yeah. early one, it's fine. Things get eliminated. But, like, I, I think I think we should start fighting. Okay. I think that that makes better radio. Uh, <laughs> okay. No more, oh, okay, this deserves this or whatever. Like, now we're going to have to start getting cutthroat because we eliminated 32 this time. By the end, we're going to have to eliminate 31 more. There's <laughs> right. just going to be one left. And that will be our, our first ever Malibu Madness champion. So yes. We can look forward to that. And who will it be? The only way to find <laughs> out will be to join us next time for another episode looking at the entire spectrum of <laughs> the Rockford Files. <laughs>